Ramble. I'm the type of person who's hyper aware of what I put in my body. I have a lot of food intolerances and it feels like every year I discover new ones. If you have allergies or IBS or you choose to avoid certain foods for personal reasons, you know the food FOMO is real and it's just not fun. A month ago, we went to Jeju Island, which is famous for pork, but because I'm allergic, I was just standing there watching everyone gobble up the food. And recently, I almost gave up morning coffee because I'm so sensitive to dairy these days and black coffee just does not hit the spot. Thankfully, I found out about minor figures and now I don't have to start my days on a bitter note. Literally, Minor Figures is an oat milk brand. They're 100% plant-based, carbon neutral, and B Corp certified. So not only do I get to enjoy my coffee, but I don't have to worry about anything irritating my stomach. There are no stabilizers or additives. And what I love is that Minor Figures Barista Oat really helps showcase the natural characteristics of the coffee. It's not just there to carry the coffee flavor, but it enhances it. So you know how at-home coffee never hits the spot like coffee shop coffee? With Minor Figures, it does. You can really taste the coffee versus the oat milk. It's delicious. You can buy their products online at us.minorfigures.com. You can also discover fun games, music playlists, and explore their store locator to see where you can buy Minor Figures near you. For my listeners in Denver and New York, Minor Figures is also now available at Whole Foods. Bada bing, bada boom. Welcome to this week's main episode of Rotten Mango. I'm your host, Stephanie Sue, And here's a very interesting would-you-rather question. Would you rather go to prison for a crime that you did not commit, but everyone around you, your friends, your family, your loved ones, even the general public, Reddit, YouTube, they know that you're innocent. They know that this is not the right conviction, but you're in prison. For how how long? Let's say like 10 years. Or would you rather kill someone, be free, but everyone thinks you did it. Everyone knows you did it, but you're free. But I killed someone. But you also killed someone and you got away with it. So, for the record... For the record, the (laughs) FBI is listening. I will go to the prison. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Same here. I mean, I think it's just... Imagine, you could never have a normal life if you killed someone and everybody knew that you did it. I mean, just even you killed someone, period. How could you have a normal functioning life afterwards? Is it even a life worth living? Now, the Watkinsons, this has nothing to do with that. Well, it all kind of comes full circle. The Watkinsons had moved into a house that cold January, and the house, it, it needed a little bit of work. It wasn't the best house on the block, but it was their home. The first few months, they settle down. They unpack, reorganize. They, they lay in bed daydreaming. What, what if we tear down that wall? Make it more open. No, we should redo the whole kitchen. It could be brighter. For sure, we need to get rid of that carpet. It's such an eyesore. I mean, it's this dark chocolate brown color and you can't match anything to it. None of our furniture looks good. You can't even look at anything else in the room. It's overpowering. Mr. Watkins agreed. So the two of them, they take their time picking out the replacement carpet. And finally, in October... 10 months after moving in, they get to installing it. They hire contractors who first start by removing the old brown carpet, popping up the metal, lifting up the carpet, popping up the metal, lifting up the carpet, and repeat. But there was this one part of the carpet that was extra stubborn. I mean, it refused to be lifted up. The contractor starts yanking at it. I mean, that's that's so strange. He pulled so hard, he almost flopped backwards, and the carpet came loose. And there was this small rectangular hole. It was odd. I mean, at first glance, it kind of looked like a heating duct without the cover, but the placement was so bizarre. Who would put a heating duct there? And inside the tiny little hole, something caught his eye. It was like a shimmer, something shiny. He reached down, grabbed at it, 
pulled out a Ziploc bag. Inside was jewelry, a ring, a necklace, a bracelet. I mean, what is this? Some sort of makeshift safe? I mean, a hiding place? But why wouldn't the owners take it before the Watkinsons moved in? Strange. And a 35mm undeveloped film. He handed it over to the family, and the Watkinsons, well, the blood drained out of their faces. They knew that they had to call the FBI. The FBI developed the film, and they saw 112 photos, all in perfect condition. The picture started off with a young woman. It almost looked as if she was getting arrested. So her front profile picture, then her side profile, then her back profile. You could tell that she wasn't happy. She was crying. Then the next sequence of pictures. The same profiles were repeated, but this time the young woman was unclothed. Another sequence of photos. The young woman was tied to the coffee table. She was tortured. The FBI already knew the ending to this story. They knew that the young woman would end up dead by the end. They even knew the victim in the pictures. They even knew the killer. But they knew that they could not arrest a single person for that murder. You're confused. I mean, so was I. Is it like the president of the United States? Is it some secret operation we don't know about? But have you heard of something called double jeopardy? Mm, yeah. As always, full show notes are available at RottenMangoPodcast.com. But there is an insane book on this case called Double Jeopardy by Bob Hill. This is like an OG true crime nonfiction book. I've I've heard of this book over the years. It's incredibly in-depth, thorough, and there is a lot of good information there. I would just say that it gets super emotional at times. You are going to leave this book angry. And that is in no fault of the author. It's just this case in general. There's no way you can even listen to this podcast and not feel this like burning rage of hot anger by the end because it's infuriating. So go pick up a copy and let's get into it. Double Jeopardy. It sounds like a game show. It sounds like one, doesn't it? Most countries have some sort of double jeopardy law, but in the U.S. it is the Fifth Amendment in the U.S. Constitution. Don't click out. I know it sounds boring, but just hold on. Essentially, the amendment states you cannot be tried twice for the same offense. You cannot be compelled to be a witness against yourself. You cannot be deprived of life, liberty, property without due process of law. I mean, there's also like this other clause that's nor shall any private property be taken for public use without compensation, blah, blah, blah. The part that we're focusing on, though, is that you cannot be tried twice for the same crime. I mean, this gets interesting because people assume it's like this gigantic loophole in the Constitution. So you can go and just fork shit up. I think a lot of people got that idea or that sentiment from a movie called Double Jeopardy. This was big back in the day. This was like the 1999 Gone Girl. It goes like this. There's this really rich couple, Nick and Libby, and they had what seemed to be the perfect family. They had this beautiful son that's four years old. They hire a babysitter on the weekends, and the two of them, they go sailing, you know? Rich people festivities. One morning on the boat, Libby wakes up. Blood everywhere. Her husband is gone. He's missing. He's not on the boat. I mean, it's a freaking boat. Where could he be? There's only two options, on the boat or off the boat, in the water. And Libby, she's holding a knife. She's confused, like, what, what is happening? She goes uh, on deck, and at that fateful moment, the Coast Guard pull up, and she looks wild. She looks like she just killed her husband and dumped him in the water, for sure. They can't find Nick's body anywhere, but regardless, Libby is arrested. She's tried and convicted for murder. Everyone assumes she did it for the $2 million life insurance policy that she had on Nick, which, by the way, Nick was found out to be under investigation for embezzlement. Another rich people crime. So she wants to get rid of the problem, aka her husband, and secure her financial future with $2 million. 
Well, one day, while on the phone in prison with her former babysitter, who is now the mother of her child, because remember, she's in prison, her husband is dead, the child is an orphan. So this babysitter adopted her kid, and she hears her baby in the back scream, Daddy! And Libby realizes Nick faked his death, framed her, and with the help of a lawyer plus fellow inmate, Libby gets paroled for good behavior, which... I don't know how, because she just murdered someone. And she tries to kill Nick because she believes she cannot be tried again for his murder. Double jeopardy. And you're like, wow, that movie is so crazy. That's some really wild parts. Well, it gets wilder. She hunts down Nick. He locks her in a coffin with a corpse inside, inside a fancy mausoleum. Anyway, long story short, she ends up shooting the guy and killing him and living happily ever after because of double jeopardy. What? <laughs> exactly. What? Right. You would be surprised at how many people thought that they could kill their ex-partners like this. But no, it's not that big of a loophole. You cannot be tried for the same crime at the same time with the same set of facts. Meaning, if you get away with stealing your neighbor's Ferrari and you get acquitted, that doesn't mean you can steal his Ferrari every single day for the rest of your life and never face legal consequences. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole thing is very charge specific. Meaning, let's say you steal your neighbor's Ferrari and you get acquitted for it. But later, the prosecutors find find blatant evidence that you lied about the events that day, then you can be charged with perjury. You can still be charged with other crimes that you haven't been charged with, such as maybe trespassing. Maybe you took the Ferrari and then you freaking trespassed on your neighbor's lawn. You could still be charged with that if you haven't been charged already. For example, there was a guy that was arrested for the murder of his coworker. He shot him at a pizza joint that he worked at. The jury found him not guilty. He was acquitted. Years later, he confessed to the murder And there's not much the police can really do about it. Why? Because there's no new evidence? No new evidence. And he can't be tried for the murder. I mean, he can be tried for something else. Now, there is an antidote, though. And I couldn't find any specific cases online. So maybe this is just a widespread story. There once was a man who was tried in court for attempted murder. He was found not guilty. And he goes up to the lead detective with his ego up to the top. And he says, I'm getting away with it. Because you know what? I did it. I tried to kill her. And the detective was so happy. He was, oh, his smile spread all the way to his ears, not because he liked the guy, not because the guy got away with it, but because the victim had recently passed due to her injuries. And now with this confession, they could charge him with murder, not attempted murder, but murder. So it's not double jeopardy. Now back to the house with the pictures, because this is all going to make sense in a second, okay? The Watkinsons had bought their house, you know, the one where they would replace the carpet. They bought that house while the original owner was being on trial for murder. I mean, I think if they knew the extent of the house, they wouldn't have bought it. So they were moving in from out of state. And every day since the day they moved in, there would be a flood of cars that drive by slowly with their windows down, faces out, just gawking at the infamous house. The Watkinsons were sick of it. Even the FBI came a few times knocking on their door. Can we search the house? No, no, no. Like, everybody just leave us alone. You guys already searched the place twice. What is the point of another search? You're not going to find anything. It was brand spanking new when we walked in. It was clean. There was not even a box. There was nothing in sight. Everything was empty. So no. I mean, what are the odds that the FBI would even rip up the carpeting and find those pictures? But had they, had they found the pictures... During the first trial of murder, maybe the killer would face the death penalty, even life in prison. It could have been easily the nail in his coffin, but it wasn't. The house belonged to a man by the name of Mel Ignato. 
interesting guy, really. And I, I mean that in a mean way. So he was born Melvin Henry Ignato, and he was born in Philadelphia. His parents were of mixed faith. So his dad was Jewish and his mom is Catholic. You're like, who cares? Uh, back in the day, this was unheard of. It was actually quite scandalous. They called it mixed faith. And the two of them, I mean, they were just looked at in public like, what is happening? What's going on? But they, they hit it off. They were both super religious, super devoted. They just had different customs. That's all. Eventually, the Ignatos moved to be closer to the dad's family, which, by the way, Mel's dad was a man with endless business plans. He opened up like 2,000 different grocery stores. First of all, that's a huge exaggeration. It was closer to three, but all three of them failed. Which, like, you got to give it to him for dedication. But they just all failed. And Mel had two other siblings. And he seemed to be the only one that was interested in helping his dad. Every day after school, Mel would go stock the shelves. He would make local deliveries of groceries around the neighborhood. I mean, the guy worked really hard. As he got older, he took on more important roles, such as being a butcher at the grocery store. But no matter how hard he worked, no matter what he did, the stores never did well. The Ignato family would actually go bankrupt twice. And Mel never knew what financial stability felt like. Eventually, David threw in the towel, closed down all of his grocery stores, and he became a carpet salesman. Yeah, a bit of a full circle in the worst way possible. He was a carpet salesman till the day that he retired. Mel's mom, though, she was a nurse at a hospital. She volunteered in her free time. I mean, she was kind of the better parent between the two. She was nurturing. She was level-headed. She was stable. She was doing most of the parenting. In high school, everyone was encouraging Mel. Bro, you gotta play basketball. Mel, Melly, Mel, Mel, you're so tall. You're like over six feet tall. If that's not a sign to be on the courts and shoot ball, I don't know what they say, okay? You gotta play basketball. So he tried and he was really excited, but it ended horribly. He was tall, but he was super clumsy and almost frail. The other players just pushed him around on the court like he was like a little slinky. They just pushed him aside. He, he just wasn't good. Everyone's like, ooh, yikes. Okay, uh, maybe you can try something else. Like studying? What about studying? You're not really athletic, huh? And that didn't work out either because Mel mostly made C's. Listen, I know grades don't define success, but good grades are necessary for some fields, okay? So it was almost comical to everyone when Mel talked about how he was going to be a heart specialist. Yes, a cardiologist. It's a bit much. They were like, with your C grades, who's going who's gonna to want you to operate on open heart surgery? Who? No one. That's not even safe. But you would talk about it. In high school, Mel dated here and there, and he was still kind of this like awkward teenager. He also had this anger, and not the typical anger that you imagine, not the going out, finding stray dogs, and like picking them apart. I'm talking about the anger that might be relatable to a lot of us. He felt cheated. He's like, I had to grow up too soon. I had to freaking put meals on the table. My parents ex expected me to work. All of my friends, they were worried about girls and football games. And I was worried about if we were going to make our mortgage that month. I feel cheated. I feel like I had to grow up too fast. And I was just dealt these shitty cards. I didn't have time to socialize. That's why I'm so freaking awkward and nerdy. Is miserable. And Mel's main goal since that day forward was to grow up, make a comfortable salary, buy a nice car, and be somebody someday. He gets into the University of Louisville, and uh, he's just not that super active in anything. Like, he would, he would get subpar grades. He joined a fraternity, and he was obsessed with the paddle. Oh, yeah, the fraternity paddle that they give you. He would hang it up on his dorm room wall, but that was it. He never went to any of the parties. He never went to any of the fraternity gatherings. He just, it was strange. The way people describe him is 
this guy cared, but only enough to do something half-assed. So what I get from like reading about him a lot is um, I feel like he's the type of person that feels accomplished just by talking about what he was planning on doing. So him talking about being a cardiologist was was giving him that like dopamine, like giving him that rush of like, oh, I'm so successful. Like, yes. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, believe in your dreams. Like, go for it. You would be a good cardiologist. He was getting all the satisfaction that he needed. So he didn't need to put in the work. That's just the vibe that he's giving. Like he always told these wild stories and they were big. He said that he used to support himself through college. So he sold a ton of porn. But business took a turn when his business partner was shot. Like it's just it's just a lot of big, wild stories. I mean, nobody believed him, but it was definitely something. But he ends up quitting college to get married to his girlfriend at the time, Sharon Kippen. They actually knew each other from high school and they thought, why wait? Why wait for things to happen to us? Let's just get married, start fresh and do this thing together. So Mel drops out. He gets a job at a place called Rusalco, which is um, like a furniture place. He's a salesman and he would stay with this company for over two decades. Now, as a businessman, as a career guy, Mel was pretty likable. He had matured out of his awkward nerdy days. He was dressing sharp. He was taking care of himself. He worked out. He ate healthy. He got these nice stylish haircuts. And while at work, he was pretty level headed. He was the type of coworker that could take things in stride. Just a nice person to be around. You know, when the whole burning building was burning down, he'd be the one that's like, all right, everyone, calm down. Like, we can handle it. He's like that guy. Hmm. And okay. more importantly, he met his sales quotas every single month. And his entire focus was climbing that ladder. He wanted to make more money, more money, more money. He wanted to buy all the things that he had wanted his entire life. And slowly but surely, no matter how hard he tried, his true colors start peeping out a little bit. Oh, yeah. So Mel was only nice to those that he saw value in. So if you were higher than him, if you could provide him something, maybe not today, maybe tomorrow, maybe one day, he would be as nice as he could be to you. But anybody that was beneath him, he was so rude, moody, arrogant. He wouldn't even look at you. Eventually, he became generally rude to all women, though. Why? Because his mindset was, well, how can a female possibly hurt me? Wow. Physically or in the workplace. (laughs) I know you want to see him crash and burn because that's me, but I'm sad to say that it paid off. By the mid 80s, Mel was earning about 150 to 200K a year, calculated for inflation, of course, but I mean, that's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And even Mel would complain to anyone that would listen, listen, I'm underpaid, underappreciated, and I'm sick of this shit. He was just so pissed off at the world. He, He couldn't take it out on the world, so he went home and he took it out on Sharon, his wife. Sharon was a few years younger and people described her to be this petite, attractive, dark haired woman. And she had this very reserved personality. And together, the two would go on to have three kids and be married for 13 freaking years. It was a rough 13 years. All Mel cared about was money, his material possessions, nothing else. He almost never kissed or hugged his wife and kids. He never showed them love, affection, nothing. He would go out, buy himself gold watches, rings, all the little fancy things in life, the luxuries of life. But he would force Sharon to penny pinch and only buy the kids cheap clothes that they could barely fit into. Which, fine, nothing is wrong with that, but he's not lacking funds. You know, the guy is buying himself gold watches. He makes a lot of money. He can afford to buy his clothes or he can afford to buy his kids well-fitting clothes. Even when they went out to eat at like a fast food chain, Mel would only let them order the cheapest things on the menu and he would get whatever he craved. 
What a weird one. Yeah. And none of that even compared to how he treated his wife when his kids weren't around. He loved to belittle her. It was his thing. It was it was feeding his little ego. He would initiate foreplay, and whenever he felt Sharon was stimulated, he would stand up, look at her, and tell her, you're not good enough for me to continue, and walk out. If something went wrong in the house, something that was sometimes out of Sharon's complete control, a light bulb would go out. She would come home a few minutes late because the kids were let out of school late. Sharon would need extra gas money because gas prices went up. Anything that mildly inconvenienced Mel, Sharon would be punished with, quote, anal sex. More like he sodomized her. He would even physically assault her on two separate occasions. And the way that he tried to fix this all was by buying Sharon a two-carat diamond ring. But you're like, what? But this is a huge deal for Sharon. I mean, all she wanted was like, Mel, please just show me some affection. Please show me some love. Show me something to give me a reason to stay. Like, this is a step in the right direction. And he would tell her, see, this is a token of my love, my sincerity. Do you know how much this ring is? It's like tens of thousands of dollars. Are you kidding? And it worked for a little while until Mel got straight back into being abusive. And anytime Sharon tried to leave, he would guilt trip her into getting back with him. He would write her these intricate, long, detailed suicide notes that blamed her for his death. Wow. And then one day, Sharon drops her diamond ring and the diamond cracks. And she's like, oh shoot, like he's gonna kill me. This is, oh my God, this is the most sentimental thing that I own. She rushes to a jeweler who tells her, oh, well, I see the problem. It's not a diamond. Oh my God. It's actually not even like a moissanite or, you know, cubics or... Co- it's like some sort of paste. I don't even know what this is. It's not even one of those. <gasps> yeah. Oh, my gosh. So like, it was like $10 probably. Yeah, it's not even like a diamond replacement that's high quality. No, it's it was like $10. Wow. And she's like, what? Mel had been guilt tripping her, making her feel so guilty over a freaking fake diamond ring. He always talked about how much diamonds cost and how much that shows his love for her. And the fact that he bought her one means that he's he's in it for the long. I'm going to punch this guy. So Sharon finally calls it quits, demands a divorce, and at first she demanded custody of the kids. But Mel hounded her, harassed her, bullied her until he got exactly what he wanted from the divorce, which was full custody of the kids, the house, all the household items inside the house, the Grand Prix car, all the personal savings and belongings the two shared. Sharon's list, she would walk away with her old Pontiac, her own personal checking account, a TV, and a rocking chair. Oh, and she was ordered to pay a monthly $700 alimony to Mel. Just to preface, just some side note, Sharon was a stay-at-home mom. It's usually the other way. But Sharon, even with her new job, she didn't even make $750 a month. You're like, what? How the court, how the hell did the courts even allow this? It seems like after 13 long years, Sharon was so exhausted. She was so traumatized. She just wanted out. She was willing to agree to anything and everything to get out of this divorce. Afterwards, Mel, he didn't take it too hard. He bought a freaking Corvette. He started hanging out at singles bars, trying to pick up young women, which I'm surprised it worked because Mel was the type of guy who'd walk into a party. And he would uh, put something up to your face. It was a dildo-shaped lollipop. And he'd say, well, go on, suck it. And uh, he would go from girl to girl until someone finally licked it. And he would giggle. It's a dick on a stick. Lick it. Ha ha, so funny. So good. The life of the party. 
never heard any better. Can't wait to be around this guy. Like, what? And he was just always asking around to see if anyone was into group sex. Yeah, the guy had a thing for group sex, and I just want to gag. Now, during this time period, he meets a woman named Mary Ann at work. She was a receptionist for Rosalco, which I don't know if I mentioned, but... This company sells high-end furniture, high-end wood furniture. And she's kind of important to this story. So in this whole series of unfortunate events, I need to talk about her for a little bit. Mary Ann Shore was, she was something. In high school, she was very attractive. Everybody called her Foxy Mary. And as she got older, it's hard to say that she kept those good looks, which sounds really messed up, which sounds so rude and judgmental. But trust me, you're going to hate this woman as much as you hate Mel. There is just not much on Mary's childhood, but in her early 20s, she meets Mel, who's in his mid-30s at the time, and uh, Marianne was just struggling a lot. She was struggling to hold down a job. She was super unreliable. She stole from her employers, which could be a reason she couldn't hold down a job. I mean, she would steal everything. Cameras, watches, rings, money, even food, even bathroom cleaners, like a bottle of Windex. She would freaking steal it. I guess maybe her job at Rosalco worked out in the beginning because it's very hard to steal a giant oak wood wardrobe. Maybe that's the reason she stayed for so long, but watch your pens, watch your watch, watch everything else. But in walks Mel, and Marianne forgets about everything, everything she could potentially pickpocket. She sees her Prince Charming, and she immediately starts dreaming up their lives together. Mary Ann Ignato. That had a ring to it. Oh my God, what if he buys me a ring? Oh my God, what if he proposes? They had just like made eye contact and she's thinking all these things. The feeling was obviously somewhat mutual. The two of them start dating on and off for the next 10 years. And in the beginning, Mel did try to woo Marianne. He bought her watches, obviously not gold or anywhere near as expensive as his. He also bought her some cheap jewelry. And even though it was nothing to Mel, Marianne loved it. She was still in her 20s, barely scraping by, still living at home. I mean, she felt like a princess around Mel. She even traveled with him a few times to Hawaii, cruises around the Caribbean. They took three separate trips to Florida. She was being whisked away. This is Prince Charming. He, he just opened so many doors in her life, and she felt so loved. He would also write her these little handwritten notes. Oh, yeah, I know. You're like, aw. Okay, so he has some positive traits. That's what you're thinking. His notes were walking red flags. Yeah, they were literally walking across the table. It was bad. The letters seemed like they were not written by a man in his late 30s, but rather a horny 15-year-old boy. He just wrote about all the X-rated things he wanted to do to her. So I don't even know if I would call it a love letter. It was like an erotic thriller. You know what? Even if that still sounds nice, let me tell you. He had this one segment where he would write to her about how she still had fat. She was fat. That's what he's saying. And it needed to be sexercised away. Her fat needed to be sexercised away. He would, yeah, he would write little jokes about truck drivers who prefer their own joysticks. He would write little jokes about dentists that could pull their peters better than they pulled teeth. But she was like, that is peak romance. And at work, Mel was bragging to his coworkers about banging the receptionist. And he would always follow up with, but you know, I would never marry her because she's not good enough for me. (laughs) You know, she's just, uh, she's there. She's a toy. There's no love. There's no respect because I'm a man and she's an undeserving woman. I just use her for sex. Mel would constantly compare Marianne to his first wife, Sharon, which Marianne hated this. I mean, who would want to be compared to your boyfriend's ex, right? She would just get so, so jealous. And during the weekends when Mel was busy with work, he had Marianne come and watch the kids. 
Yeah, because remember, he got full custody. He had the kids at home. So Marianne hated it, but she did feel closer to Mel. She would come on over, pop on the couch, and completely ignore the children. She didn't cook. She didn't clean. She did nothing around the house. She forced the kids to do all of it. She never even talked to them, never made an effort to get to know them. In fact, she would blackmail them. She would say, uh, 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 what did your dad say before he left? Right. Be pleasant to Mary Ann. Exactly. Do you need a spanking? I didn't think so. There's a lot of tension in the house. The kids even noticed things were going missing from their rooms whenever Marianne was babysitting them. Yeah, she straight up stole from her boyfriend's kids. But what do I know about morals? Sometimes the couple would break up and the kids would look out their window and they would notice Marianne just standing motionless, staring into the house like a ghost. Like it was creepy. She was obsessed with their dad, Mel. She would tell the kids, we can't even get married until you brats leave the house. So go on, move out. And the kids eventually did in their late teens. After 10 years of this, Marianne was fed up. She told Mel, I can't do this anymore. Either you propose to me or I'm leaving. I'm done. And Mel said, okay then, goodbye. And Marianne stormed off thinking, just, just wait, okay? Just wait a week, maybe two weeks because it takes a while to like custom do a proposal ring and like an engagement ring. It takes time and then he has to plan the proposal, but he's going to show up with the ring. I know he is. Instead, Mel went to jail for tax evasion. He wow, w- yeah, went to jail. He went to jail. Must be serious. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because so, yeah, you don't really hear it unless it's on a big scale. Yeah, but like, it was multiple years of tax evasion, just blatantly lying about his income. Yeah, He was sentenced to three years in prison, but he only served 30 days. Which, by the way, he didn't even tell his workplace. Nobody knew. They all thought that he was, you know, gone for a family emergency. When he gets out, Marianne feels really bad. She's like, oh my God, this is when he needs me the most. You know, tax evasion charges are really rough. Maybe he will realize that I'm sticking by him no matter what, and he's going to see how much I mean to him. Mel even admitted to her and others, I just don't really like you that much. You're kind of like an accessory to me. Later, Marianne would be an accessory to the murder of Brenda Schaefer. A bit about Brenda. Brenda was born in Louisville, Kentucky. Her parents were John and Essie, and they were a bit older for parents. They were 37 and 39. My mom was 35 when she had me, so I kind of relate. So Brenda was the youngest of six kids, and the family was so cute, especially from the outside. I mean, one of the kids was adopted. John, the dad, he worked as a whiskey taster at a distillery. The One of the sons was trying to be a police officer. Like, they just kind of had that picture-perfect American family. John would have to work these graveyard shifts. So sometimes he would get off the bus near their house, and the kids would be waiting near the bus stop to go to school. So it's like, you know, it's kind of sad, but it's also kind of cute and enduring that they're all working so hard. The kids also got along with their parents, especially Brenda and her mom. So a little backstory. Essie, the mom, had a pregnancy before Brenda, and it was a rough one. Her baby died in her uterus, and Essie starts getting really sick. The doctors tell her, we need to induce you. Like, you're going to die unless this fetus is out of your system because this, this fetus is dead. Now, Essie, being super Catholic, she thought that induced labor essentially means abortion. So she starts panicking. On one hand, if she didn't induce herself and she died, her children would be without a mom. But on the other hand, if she induced herself, she would be going against her faith. In the end, she did not get induced. She had a stillbirth at home. The fetus was already decomposed by the time she pushed it out. It was a miracle Essie survived. Now, there was a lot of trauma that she had to deal with after this event. And a year later, she gets pregnant again with a baby girl 
Brenda. I mean, I think this whole pregnancy helped Essie heal emotionally, but she became attached to the hip to Brenda. I mean, not that they had much of a choice. The family of seven lived in a two-bedroom house. It was cramped. John kept saying, well, the kids are going to move out soon, so I don't want to get a bigger place. Just to give you reference, (laughs) the oldest already moved out, and the second oldest, the oldest in the house at this point, was 13 years old. Like, when is she going to move out? I just, I want to ask. So then he waited until she turned 18 to finally get a bigger place. Now, I think the reason that people were confused by this was because at first it wasn't finances that was stopping them. It didn't seem like that was the reason. He just didn't want to move. It was kind of weird. Now, the family moved into a larger house, about nine bedrooms, on a beautiful, quiet street with a beautiful backyard. Brenda loved it there. She was, she, was, she was just in heaven. She was the baby of the family, the only one to have brown eyes, and they were huge. When they looked at you, it was hard to say no, especially Essie. I mean, she took her relationship with Brenda to the extreme. I can imagine she lost a baby before Brenda. She's probably terrified that something bad is going to happen to Brenda. This is her baby. She was constantly afraid. She's constantly on the lookout for where Brenda is. Even when Brenda starts going to school, Essie gets a job at the school cafeteria to be close to Brenda. And Brenda doesn't mind. At least not for now. She's young. She loves her mom. She wants to be with her all the time. But of course, when she hits her teenage years, love or not, mom or not, she's trying to live her own life. Essie would never approve. But Brenda learns how to sneak behind her back. Here's a list of the wildest things Brenda did without Essie knowing. They consisted of when Brenda's friends would come over, they would smoke cigarettes in her room. Scandalous. Brenda would lie and say she's meeting a few girlfriends, but she would sneak to the movie theater, meet a boy, and make out with him in the back. Wow. Wild. All the very normal things, okay? That's what I'm trying to get at. Like, these are very normal high school things. In fact, Brenda's friends made fun of her for being so tame. Sure, she would sneak off to date boys, but she was still very firm on abstinence till marriage. She had all of these lists of things that she wanted to check off in a future husband. She was a little bit more naive than her friends as well. She had a ton of insecurities that were relatable as a teenager. She, she felt like her hair was ugly. She wasn't skinny enough. She wasn't fun enough. She wasn't wild enough. And then one day, summer break, 16-year-old Brenda and her good friend are tanning near the river, and these two guys pull up in a boat. One of them was 19-year-old Pete Pelt. What a name, Pete Pelt. He instantly liked Brenda. She was beautiful. She looked like a movie actress, and he's like, Hey, I'm Pete. I graduated high school and now I'm working as a police dispatch and I'm trying to be a police officer one day. Now, the book mentions that he wouldn't be because he was too short. I don't know what that means. I didn't know that there was a height requirement, but apparently he was just as tall as Brenda. Listen, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know why the short kings are not allowed in the police academy. So he's like, can I take you on a date? This is my favorite way to unwind at the end of a long day. I make myself some hot chocolate. I wrap up in my coziest blanket and I become Detective June Parkett. I don't actually become a detective, but that's how I feel when I'm playing June's journey. You play as June, and the story starts with you flying from London to New York to investigate the suspicious murder of your sister and brother-in-law. But that's just the first in a very long line of suspicious murders. There's so many family secrets, twists, and you get to uncover all of these mysteries through a series of hidden objects games. Like you search for hidden letters or other objects that help you advance in the story. The storytelling in this game is impeccable. I mean, every detail is important. It stimulates you because you feel like a detective. 
The game takes June literally all around the world, from New York to Havana to Paris, and you get to meet all kinds of characters. I do not trust any new characters at this point because everybody seems to have a hidden motive. And as the story is progressing, you can learn about new characters as you collect bits of information to build your photo album. I also really love the dialogue in this game and just how immersive it is. There are some scenes where you really feel like you are Detective June. There's mystery, murder, danger, even romance. Sometimes it does get a little intense, so if I feel like taking a break from all the crazy plot twists, I go back to my little private island. Okay, it's not little, it's actually huge. It's called Orchid Island, and I get to decorate it in any way that I want. I have a waterfall on my island, and I'm currently making a train station route. There's just something so satisfying about getting to color code everything and make sure all the pieces fit. It's such a cozy yet thrilling game. It's almost as satisfying as puzzling the pieces of June's family's mysteries together because, listen, I'm telling you, my husband will definitely find me on the couch later today playing June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. My dogs will eat anything. I mean, I have two Frenchies and it's a daily struggle to keep them from trying to eat toilet paper, bees, even trash. My dogs have no idea what's good for them. And you know, that's okay because their job is to be cute. My job is to take care of them to the best of my ability. That is why I only buy the farmer's dog dog food. Think about it. Most dog foods claims it's made out of whole ingredients. But then why does it come in the form of these very crusty pellets? But dogs will eat anything you give them, even dry kibble. Most dog food claims that they're made out of whole ingredients. But when I stare at these dry kibbles, it's very hard for me to see the whole ingredients. And I always had to mix in bone broth or water because it would be so dry that my dogs would eat too quickly and they would hack it up. It just didn't look tasty. The farmer's dog believes that all dogs deserve to eat real fresh food. That's why farmer's dog dog food is made from whole wheat and veggies and gently cooked in human grade kitchens to preserve nutritional value. It makes me feel so good seeing my dog's little tails wagging. Sometimes Mango's entire butt will shake when it's time for their dinner because they know and I know that they're eating fresh, healthy food. It genuinely looks like human food. I've noticed such an improvement in how shiny and soft their coat is and their breath doesn't teleport me into another dimension anymore. I can see the veggies in their food. I mean, my dog always gains a little bit of weight this time last year just because they move around less when it gets a little bit colder. So I feel like it's very important to always watch portions in the winter months. The farmer's dog makes it easy to monitor my dog's portions. Our dog's meals arrive in pre-portioned, ready-to-serve packs, which is super convenient. All you need to do is tell the farmer's dog about your puppy or your dog, and they'll deliver personalized, vet-developed recipes for as little as $2 a day. And you can adjust the recipe selection, portion sizes, and delivery cadence according to your needs and schedule. Get 50% off your first box of fresh, healthy food at thefarmersdog.com slash mango. That's 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash mango. Now, Pete was Brenda's first and only real high school boyfriend. Like, not just a makeout in the movie theater, but a true boyfriend. And the fact that Pete was 19, Brenda is 16, there was a bit of a maturity and a power difference. Pete very quickly became super dominant in the relationship. Like, he's calling all the shots. He's incredibly possessive. He just took over Brenda's life. He wanted to dictate when she could see her friends, who she could be friends with, what she could wear. I mean, everything. Right after Brenda graduated high school, he proposed to her. I think she really liked the idea of being engaged. She would go around and she would flaunt her ring. People said Brenda would sometimes lift up her left hand with her right hand as if her ring weighed her down, <laughs> as if her ring weighed 20 pounds. And Brenda's family, they were conflicted on how to feel. I mean, they felt like she was way too young and they wanted to support her decisions. But, but, okay, you know what? Yeah, they're just going to support her. 
So the couple set a wedding date and everything, but it had to be pushed back because May of that year, something really terrible happened to the Schaefer family. Jack Schaefer, Brenda's 28-year-old brother, he was working as a police officer when he was killed on the line of duty. It was brutal. It was heartless. So let me explain. Jack loved his job with every fiber of his being. He loved keeping the town safe. He was devoted to all of it. The night of his murder, he was with a new partner named Wilbur Hayes. And Wilbur was definitely a bad cop. Like he was a horrible cop. Uh, Just, uh, he was the poster child for police brutality. And he had a reputation of being aggressive. And just a month earlier, there was a black 18-year-old kid who came at him with a screwdriver. Now, am I saying that's okay? Absolutely not. Am I saying that's not terrifying to be on the receiving end? Absolutely not. But this officer who is trained to protect the people shot and killed the kid. And after that incident, Wilbur was getting death threats. He was getting requests from the black community to have him resigned. I mean, this with all of his other track records, it wasn't just this one incident. It was really clear that Wilbur was a raging racist. So that night, Wilbur and Jack, they're not even close, are patrolling a predominantly black neighborhood and Wilbur's driving and he starts slowing down near these three teenagers. So we had 22-year-old Narvel Jr. Tinsley, uh, 17-year-old Michael Tinsley, and their friend 16-year-old David White. I don't even know what this means, but it was said that they look like they're carrying weapons, which like, what does that even look like? they just have like a gun up in the air i don't know and uh they were though so when they see the cop car they throw their guns into the tall grass but it was too late wilbur was ready to stir things up he parked he gets out and he immediately starts arguing with them he's like i saw what you did blah 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 he pushes narvel up against the car very aggressively again not warranted not necessary even jack is not agreeing with this like he is not supporting this type of police behavior But this triggers 17-year-old Michael. He's seeing his brother get manhandled by a police officer. So he grabs a gun from the grass and he fires three shots into Wilbur's head from the back. At this point, Jack, who does not condone any of this and actually didn't even condone Wilbur pulling over and being so aggressive with the three kids, he comes out to save his partner's life or at least try to. And Narvel, the one that was, you know, being hurt by Wilbur, He grabbed the gun and shot Jack twice in the head, close range. David White didn't participate in any of the shootings, and he actually begged Narvell to not shoot Jack. He kept saying, Jack is one of the good ones. He's a nice cop. But Narvell shot him anyway. So the three put Wilbur's body face down on the rear floor of the car, drove it into an alleyway. Jack was then placed on a mattress and dragged 400 feet into a different alley. It was said that Jack did not die instantly, and it was a very painful death. The brothers were arrested and a very strange twist of fate, um, if I can call it that, Jack's brother, Tom Schaefer, ended up meeting the widow of Wilbur Hayes at the trial and they ended up getting married. Yeah, so I think they found a connection in their grief and their loss. But this event, I mean, it shook up the Schaefer family. How could it not? Brenda, especially, she had been so close with her brother and she just valued his opinion, his advice, and now he was gone. So she postponed her wedding for six months so she could try and just focus on herself. Pete fondly remembers after they got married, the first few years of his marriage with Brenda, he said, you know, she just had this warm, loving way about her. She was painfully shy at times, reclusive almost. But I I thought the longer we were together, eventually she would open up, right? Wrong. The main problem for us was sex. Brenda liked snuggling, she liked kissing, but she wasn't comfortable with sex. She always seemed nervous, a little embarrassed. She'd never feel comfortable exploring her sexuality. Just, it, w- it was almost rare when we had sex. 
Whenever I tried to talk to her about it or wanted her to see someone, maybe we could go see a marriage counselor together. She would just passionately refuse. Brenda would later tell her friends, I just, I just don't feel like I'm sexually compatible with Pete. I feel like his needs and mine don't match. I don't know. Now, it is suspected that Brenda was never sexually abusive or traumatized, so potentially it's just her being super sheltered and conservative and being raised that way. Maybe she was raised in more of like a shame-oriented background. I don't know. But she was just very uncomfortable, and this is going to exist throughout her life. So while she's married to Pete, Brenda's mom, Essie, gets diagnosed with lupus. And Brenda makes it her priority to take care of her mom. I mean, she's so inspired by this. She actually wants to be trained to be a nurse's aide. And Pete did not like it. He felt like she should be staying home, focusing on them. But she's out there chasing a career, which made him feel like you're doing too much for money. You're doing too much for material things. Oh, and then there was the party problem. Whenever Pete wanted to blow off some steam, he would go to these parties with his friends. And as soon as anyone in the room starts drinking or smoking or even swearing, Brenda would tug on Pete's shirt and say, Psst, let's go home. Please, let's just go home. I don't want to be here. So the two of them, they were very different and it just wasn't going to work out. So they break it off after four years of marriage. It was a hard decision. I mean, Brenda was raised religious. Her dad even told her, you made your bed. You need to stay there and straighten it out. You cannot get a divorce. But she couldn't do it anymore. So she divorced Pete and it took her a long time to recover. When she finally got back to dating, um, there was kind of a new trend. She seemed to like older guys that were financially secure. Now, a lot of people would say that she was hungry for money, but I think that she was being practical. And you know what? Maybe she was tired of constantly budgeting. Who are we to judge? She starts dating a few guys here and there, focusing on other relationships. She made a best friend named Joyce. They worked together, and she always talked about her life with Joyce. Joyce said, you know, Brenda was an interesting one. Her idea of fun at the office was not was not happy hour, was not gossiping, but was to jump up at the end of a 12-hour shift and yell, I love my job. <laughs> and Joyce is like, what? <laughs> what are you saying? Sometimes she would write Freddie Spud on the receptionist sign-in sheet and everyone would struggle. Have you guys seen Freddie Spud's chart? What room is Freddie Spud in? Wait, what doctor is assigned to Freddie Spud? And she just thought it was hilarious. It's just like really innocent fun. Like truly, she's an innocent girl. I don't know how else to describe it. It seems like with age, she didn't get jaded. But her insecurities really started to get stronger during this time. She felt a lot of shame from the divorce and she just wanted to work on herself. She got a rhinoplasty. She got a breast augmentation. There was just a lot of societal pressure from everyone and everywhere. Joyce even said this was during a time where people would even put on makeup just to walk outside to get the mail. Like women were wow. expected to be perfection every second of the day. This, I'm sure this is like around the time where the, the women were expected to stay home but put on a full face and wear their cute little dresses and heels and while they cook dinner. Like that time. I know. Crazy. I know. You've never seen that, have you? <laughs> <laughs> Joyce didn't get it though. Brenda was beautiful. What did she need all of this for? Anyway. Joyce and Brenda, they decide to head to Miami for a girl's trip. And while at dinner at TGI Fridays, Brenda runs into a guy named Jim Rush. Jim is in his 40s and Brenda's in her 20s. And he's this successful dentist. He wants to take care of Brenda financially, emotionally, mentally, physically, everything. He would give her these cute handwritten cards. No, they were actually cute, okay? They were not Mel Ignato. These were Jim Rush cute. They were actually cute. He would rent an entire billboard sometimes that would just say, 
Brenda, there is not enough room for me to express all my love for you. Jim. So cute. Mm -hmm. He would whisk her away on these lavish trips to Florida, Hawaii. And, you know, Brenda's family loved him. They were together for eight years and they were considering marriage. So what went wrong in this seemingly perfect relationship? Lots of things. Jim was an alcoholic. And not in the violent sense, but in just the unhealthy sense. He would get drunk and fall through his glass coffee table. He would trip and fall in public. And in addition to that, he smoked and gambled a lot. He was always nice to her. He always loved her. He always respected her. But Brenda hated it. She just doesn't like this type of environment. She wasn't perfect either, though. Jim complained, Brenda, you're too reserved. You're too stoic. I feel like I have to pry information out of you. I, I never know what's going on inside your head. I don't know how you feel about me. Nothing. I know nothing. How do you feel about our relationship? I don't know. Our future. I don't freaking know. You never talk to me about anything. But yet you're in control of everything. He wrote a letter to her and he said, you just act so cold, so analytical of me at times. You're playing with my heart and it's not fair for you to have control over us. But he also wrote about how much he loved her and how much he wanted things to work out. And she was just too cold to him. He ended the beautiful, heartbreaking letter where he bared his soul with, P.S. I'm seeing a therapist about my impotence, which is not funny. But just from the letter structure aspect, it was a little bit out of left field. It's like, P.S., I'm seeing my therapist about my balls. It was just out of nowhere, okay? Like, really out there. So Brenda reads this letter, and she wrestles with her feelings. But I think she was just too scared to enter into another marriage. She just did not want another divorce. If she wasn't 100% confident this marriage was going to work, she can't do it. So in the end, Brenda ended it. Their eight-year-long relationship. And she was struggling. It was not an easy decision. Joyce, who's watching this, who's her best friend, she just is trying to do everything to cheer her up. And then she gets the genius idea. Hey, so the guy that I'm seeing, Bob, he's got this friend and he's nice. He even has his own boat. And you know what they say, to get over a boy, you have to get under a new one. Do you want to go on a double date with us? I I guess, okay, I, I, I don't know if I want to, you know what, you're right. Like, it's not even a date. It's just, we're hanging out, right? Right. Okay, fine. Fine. Count me in. So Brenda reluctantly agreed, and that's how she met Mel. And first impressions were great. Mel was definitely upper class for Louisville. He had a stable career, a well-paying job, a boat. He went on business trips. He drove a Corvette Corvette. He owned his own house. It seemed like he was the perfect catch. Sure, he was much older. He was in his 50s. But Mel's main selling point was his remodeled bathroom. I know. Okay, he, he bragged about it. He thought it was the peak of his life, the height of his everything. The whole bathroom was pink and beige along with the toilet paper. So back in the day, colored bathrooms were the thing. Like these white bathrooms, these modern concrete bathrooms, ugh, disgusting, you have no class. If I went over to your bathroom and it was white, ugh, I would spit in your face. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> but uh, back in the day, colored bathrooms were all the rave. It's about showing your personality. Your sink would be pink. And that's why if you go on Zillow and you look yes. at Beverly Hills houses, a lot of them are not remodeled and you will see a ton of pink bathrooms. Huh. A ton. Crazy. Yeah. And so back in the day, toilet paper would come in these beautiful pastel colors. Lavender, pink, beige. It started in the 50s when there was that trend, right? And the whole pink tiles, blue tiles, the tubs would be bright pink, towels would be coordinated, even the carpet. Yeah, there was carpet in the bathroom would be pink. <laughs> so why would you want white toilet paper to clash with your space? 
So That's they so sold. fun. Wonder when would that come back? Yeah, it's not going to come back because doctors warned that the dyes are harmful to your skin and your butthole. So, I mean, I guess if you want an itchy butthole. Okay. And he said, all right, I'm still going to order it. <laughs> yeah, and there were environmental concerns about the dyes being flushed, you know, and the whole bathroom design changed into a much more monotone, all-white bathroom these days. So he had, the, he had the purple, he had the pink, he had the pink toilet paper and everything. So back to Mel's shit room. The bathroom was pink granite with a gold faucet, huge mirrors everywhere, an etched glass shower door, controlled lighting. I mean, it was heaven. It truly was. He bragged nonstop that the remodeling cost him close to $50,000. I know. Even though Mel had a tendency to talk over everyone, and he was 50, which is a lot older than Brenda, he also had thinning hair, a wide mustache, and glasses. Everyone kind of found him endearing. He almost looked like an awkward but super cute English professor. Like a safe choice. If you were to present him and maybe a fellow 30-year-old, I think all the girlfriends would say, you know, Mel is the safe choice, obviously. He's the one that has a stable career. And, you know, he doesn't look that hot and ripped and jacked, but he looks cute. That's what they would say about Mel. So the first double date. It seems to go super well. Mel even invited Brenda for a follow-up date. And she said yes. She told Joyce, I'm not physically attracted to him, but he has this like pleasantness about him. I like the way that when I'm talking, he's focused entirely on me, which is nice. And, and, and it doesn't hurt that he's financially secure. Again, Brenda is not money hungry, but she came from a modest background. She's 30. So of course she considers a potential future partner's financial ability. I mean, that's only smart. And Joyce was ecstatic at first. Then she starts learning about Mel. And she just, she didn't like him. The guy was weird. He bragged all the time about working for the CIA. Listen, anybody ever tells you they work for the CIA, don't believe them. Even if they actually work for the CIA, who cares? Okay, just be like, shut up, you little liar. Bigger red flag. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) More dangerous. Stay away. Okay, you just, you just gotta be like, yeah, get out of here. He boasted about having $300,000 of cash hidden in China. He also talked about his sexual escapades. Wait, China as in the country China or in the in the China China? In a plate. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. In the country China. Oh. <laughs> he also talked about his sexual escapades in China with sex workers. Like he bragged about it. I will never understand. I mean, the guy is a walking red flag. She felt so strongly about this. Joyce told Brenda, Brenda, if you don't stay away from him someday, I'm going to read about you in the paper. But what could Brenda do? Mel came out strong and incredibly aggressive. He kept pushing her for more dates and he was just really selling himself. Which, by the way, Mel sold products at work, not with his charm nor his ability to build rapport. No, the guy was one of those salesmen that would just hound you. Hey, I'm calling to follow up with you. But it was like every two seconds. He's following up every two seconds. There was a follow up to a follow up to a follow up to a follow up. And you would just get so frustrated, so annoyed that maybe you just bought whatever he's selling. You're like, get out of my life. Stop annoying me. You block your number. That was Mel. So he did the same thing to Brenda. He pushed and he pushed until she agreed to another date. And he starts showering her with gifts. An opal ring, a silver shadow fox coat. And he starts bringing Brenda around, all dressed up, bragging about her. It got weird really fast. He started carrying a picture of Brenda in a bathing suit in his wallet. And he would show it off to his coworkers. 
which like i don't mind you having a picture of me in my bikini in your wallet but like if you're introducing me to someone for the first time i wouldn't want that to be the picture <laughs> like a good headshot maybe a cute little couple's pic when like we're in a garden you know but his coworkers, they were hyping him up. They're like, holy cow, she's so hot. Like, you gotta, you gotta tie her down. And with that encouragement from all of his male colleagues who were googly eyes at hair bikini pics, he decided he was going to propose to Brenda after just two months of meeting. She was not ready, but he pushed and he pushed and he would show up to her work with flowers and gifts and he bought her this $20,000 engagement ring and she finally accepted after enough begging. She really only said yes to get him to stop. I don't even consider them engaged because she refused to set a wedding date. She did not have an engagement party. She also actually avoided wearing the ring in public. I mean, it was just a lot. She really just said yes so he would stop hounding her. In the meantime, Mel gets fired from his job. Okay, I don't know. I don't know if it's him flaunting the pics of his girlfriend in a bikini. Because HR is a thing. I don't know if it was his nonstop cocky attitude. I don't know what it was. But he was fired after 23 years. And Mel was pissed. He had gotten comfortable with that salary. He liked his ranking. And now his entire life felt like it was in jeopardy. Yes, jeopardy. It felt like after being fired, a switch flipped in Mel. And the relationship took this very toxic turn. So let's run you through the list. Firstly, Mel started blaming Brenda for his job loss. He legitimately tried to tell her it was because she played too many games, rejected his proposal too many times, so he had to spend more time and energy trying to get her to say yes and win her back. And he should have been spending that time and energy on work. So it's your fault. Then he tried to tell her, it's your fault, so you have to make it up to me. You owe me. How should you make it up to me? Well, by anal sex or group sex. Brenda would later tell her friend, all Mel talks about is sex and himself. So back to the list. Mel would yell at her to loosen up and told her she needs to get better at sex. And his great advice on how to do it was learn to relax and enjoy it. Sorry, maybe it's just not enjoyable, you weirdo. Here, I can help you. And he would force Brenda to watch porn and smoke weed, which she hated drugs. And when that didn't work, he would force her into taking these prescription pills. She was traumatized from this. She would wake up not remembering what had happened. She'd be completely naked. I mean, imagine how traumatic that must be. It was terrifying. And she told him, I don't ever want to do that ever again. And he would just laugh and say, I can get this pill in you somehow if I really want to. I mean, the rest of the sentence goes unsaid. Or you can just comply with my demands. So do as I say. Anytime they had dinner or hung out or spent time together, he would, you guessed it, talk about anal sex or group sex. Brenda struggled with regular sex as it was, and now he kept telling her about this attractive couple that he knew that wanted to do group sex with them, and it was just so intense. So she would shut him down, and he would just say, or I guess I could just tie you up and do whatever I want. And he would laugh, and he'd say, oh, I'm, I'm kidding. But eventually, it's just another thing that he annoys her with. Please, let me just do it. Let me just once. I'll stop talking about everything if you just, I'll, I'll never bring it up again if you just let me do it once. She agrees. And he ties her up so roughly that she starts crying. And she says, can you please just loosen it a little bit? He did not. Instead, he raped her. He also tried to convince her to take these hallucinogenic drugs, shrooms. He tried to convince her to take shrooms. And on one occasion, Brenda woke up with this stinging sensation in her nose and her throat. It was painful. It was like someone was just putting a bowl of straight acetone in front of her face. She was in Tennessee in a hotel room with Mel, and she had this sneaking suspicion that it was him. I mean, all this talk of drugging her, wouldn't you have that suspicion? 
She pretended like she was asleep. She opened her eyes a tiny bit and Mel was standing over her with a cloth in his hand. So she's like, okay, I'm going to watch and see what he does. He inches closer, closer, puts it up to her face and she freaks out. She backs up. She's like, what the hell are you doing? Oh, wow. You're awake. Nothing. It's just something that I brought back from China. I thought you could use it. You've been so pent up recently and this is going to help you relax. It's going to help you fall asleep. Don't worry. I I don't want that. I was already asleep. What are you talking about? So she freaks out on him. And when he's not doing that, yeah, the list goes on other than just trying to drug her. He would call her at random points in the day. And if she didn't pick up, he assumed the worst. Not that she was in danger or that she was dead, but that she was cheating on him and disrespecting him. He would freak out. Even if she didn't pick up her work phone, he would freak out. He fully controlled her life. He wanted to make sure that she met her nightly curfew of 10 p.m., She's a full-grown woman. This is a full-grown man we're talking about and not her father. He would freak out if she didn't meet her curfew. Oh, and to add to all of that, he had this thing about being incredibly spotless in the house. He would explode on Brenda about the tiniest little things. If she didn't tear the toilet paper evenly across the roll, he would freak out. If the water faucet handles were not in an even position, he would freak out. And last but not least... He wanted full control over her finances. He wanted to know all the assets she had. He wanted her to write down every single jewelry piece that she owned, their value. And she's like, why? Well, I just want to make sure that you're insured for everything, you know? These are not just the pieces that he gave her, but like her entire collection. He wanted to know how much money she had. He even, okay, this one's odd to me. He even wanted to know where her receipts were for her breast augmentation and her rhinoplasty. Huh, what does that even mean? I don't know. He's like, where do you keep your receipts? I want to know. He wanted to know and control every detail of her life. I mean, Brenda thought that this guy was following her home from work. She told Joyce, it's like he wants to own me, mind, body, and soul. So she tries over and over to break up with Mel, but he would just freak out, start crying, get on his knees. How could you leave me at a time like this? I just lost my job. I need you the most right now. And Brenda would feel guilty. Take him back. Brenda knew she had a problem. She even read a book called Women Who Love Too Much, and she related to the girls who were taught to go along with everything since they were young. They were taught to comply even if they don't like it or agree with what's happening, even if it doesn't make them happy. They were taught to not make waves or noise. They were taught and trained to be submissive. And she identified with that, and she was exhausted from this relationship. Friends said it started to show up physically. She started having these intense headaches, these stomach problems. She was constantly irritable. She, her hair was unkept. Her, she wasn't dressed well, and this was so unlike Brenda. So with this knowledge, Brenda tries to do everything she can to distance herself from Mel. I think what's really sad is... This is a situation where she genuinely sees everything. She sees the danger... And she's trying and he will not let her go. She even tries dating Jim. She's like, okay, you know, I want to reconnect with my ex. And she still straight up told him, listen, I'm still with Mel and I'm trying to break up with him. And he won't let me break up with him. Do you mind waiting for me? Jim's like, I don't mind. I've been waiting this whole time. I'm just glad we're talking again. Jim's a really nice guy, it seems. So Jim would come over and hang out with Brenda and Essie. And it was just like old times again. And then September 21st, Jim gets a call. Hey, it's me, Brenda. I finally broke up with Mel. I did it. I know. It's final. Do you want to go out to celebrate? Yes, I can do this weekend. Okay, perfect. I need to see Mel one last time to give back his ring and some other jewelry, and uh, we can finally start fresh. They would never go out to celebrate because Brenda would be murdered. September 25th, Brenda hops into the car, and she's not happy about seeing Mel one last time, 
but she wants to get it over with. She wants to feel free again. She kisses her mom bye, and she packs up all the jewelry that he had ever gifted her. She leaves around 2 p.m. Now hours pass. Four, then six, then 12, and around 3.30 a.m., Essie starts getting concerned, like, where the hell is Brenda? She can't get in contact with her, so Essie calls Mel. Hey, uh, Mel, this is Essie, Brenda's mom. Have you seen um, Brenda? I know that she was meeting with you today. Brenda? Oh, she left like four hours ago. And then he launched into the most suspicious, overly detailed explanation ever. Now, I'm going to breeze through this because it's just not pertinent to the story. But just to show you how suspicious this guy is, the mom asked, where's Brenda? And he responded, well, Brenda picked me up around 3 p.m. And I usually drive when we're together, but my Corvette was having tire issues. So Brenda drove. She picked me up. We drove around for a little while. And then we came back home. And oof, that was like, I want to say like 11.30 p.m. And it, it, was a, it was a long time. We were talking a lot. Anyway, if she left right after she dropped me off, she would take Interstate 64, which is what she always takes, like she normally does. And that would mean that she would be at her house by the latest 11.45. But now I'm looking at the time. It's like four in the morning. Oh, that's weird. Huh? She's not home. Should we be worried? Is she OK? Essie was confused. She's like, OK, that's a lot of information. But then it dawned on her. She's like, maybe Brenda went to go see her ex, Jim. She's like, oh, shoot, if Mel finds out broken up or not, he's going to throw a fit. He's going to make a scene. He might even try to punch Jim. So she decides to be quick on her feet and she covers for Brenda. She says, oh, oh, never mind. I, I just realized she's at her sister-in-law's house, actually. And all of a sudden, Mel goes, are you sure? And he seemed skeptical and panicked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's at her sister-in-law's. Oh, OK. And he hung up and he calls Brenda's sister-in-law like, is Brenda there? What? No. Who said she was here? Essie said she was here? No, she's not here. And he breaks down into tears and he says, I'm just so worried about Brenda. That's all. God, what am I going to do? I mean, I guess you could call 911. <sighs> okay. So he calls dispatch to let them know that Brenda might or might not be missing. He has no idea, of course. He's just a silly little dumb boy. And the dispatch sends it over to the police who find an abandoned car on the highway. The, hi the car had a flat tire. The inside had been ransacked. Even the entire car stereo was missing. They look inside. They see what looked like blood in the back seat. It was Brenda's car. And the police were investigating it as a homicide. I think for a lot of reasons. The blood. The fact that it was abandoned, ransacked. There was even a partial print on the back of the car that looked like someone was using the car to try and get up, which you might do if you're in a weakened state. Maybe you're injured or you're unable to get up on your own. When the Schaefer family find out that the police are investigating Brenda's disappearance as a homicide, they hold an emergency family meeting. Most of them were talking to Essie about the strange phone call that she had with Mel, they were like, it, it was weird. He said that his car tire wasn't working. I mean, it was, it was this long-winded explanation of why Brenda wasn't driving, was driving him around. It's just bizarre. And then a knock on the door. Mel. The family opened up the door and parked in the driveway behind Mel was Mel's Corvette Corvette. The tires were perfectly fine. Fascinating. But you know what? You can get a quick fix. They let Mel in and he just, he starts kind of pacing. I feel really bad for coming on over here. I hope I'm not interfering in any way. I, I don't want to interfere, but I just, I just needed someone to talk to. The Schaefer sit around and watched him in disbelief, really, because Mel made it all about him. He said, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. I just can't believe this is happening. There, there, Mel. I, I'm sure she's going to come back. I know she's going to show up. Our sister always does. No, she's not. I think she's gone. I think she's dead. It's just really bizarre. So everyone in the house at that point is already oh, suspicious yeah. of him. 
The guy's suspicious. The Schaefers wanted to ask Mel a million questions, and so did the police. So the police bring him in for questioning, and right off the bat, the guy is sending off all the alarms. He's babbling. No, it was bad. Like, he went off on multiple tangents. I'll list a few. Again, not pertinent to the story, but just showing you how suspicious he is. Mind you, the police are like, tell us about your day. The day that Brenda disappeared. Just tell us about the day. And he talks about how much Brenda likes to drive. Normally, he picks her up in his Corvette. Corvette, but not the, not that day. Because the tires were making this whirring noise. And you know how Corvettes are. You don't get them because you want to save money on maintenance. Ain't that right, fellas? Anyway, first we went to a restaurant. Then we went to a boat show. But then the weather was so bad, we didn't even get on the boat. Brenda was not that fun to be around, if I'm being honest, because she was real depressed. You know, her mom has lupus. You know about lupus? Yeah, you do. Anyway, she's depressed. By the way, did you find her car? What car? What condition was the car in? Ah, do you guys have any leads? Any theories? No? Okay, back to the story. So then we go to the art fair. And then while we were there, we were like, nah, fuck the art. So we went to the mall just to go window shopping. And we're like walking around, but we didn't see anything that we liked. So we didn't buy anything for like two hours. We drove back to the creek. We found another restaurant, but then decided, nah, we're not really hungry. So we kept changing our minds because the weather was so bad. So then we went window shopping at a different plaza and we bought nothing. And that's how we spent the entire day until 11.30 p.m. Brenda dropped me off and I made sure before getting out of the car to turn around and say, drive safely like I always do. And then I went inside the house and when I got back inside, I I started reading the newspaper and I'm like, oh, you know. They send so many coupons in the mailer these days. And I think I might have seen some food in one of them because I got hungry. I I think I might have seen some like an ad for fast food. I found myself in the kitchen. Anyway, I couldn't find anything in the kitchen. So I decided to risk it all. I took my whirring Corvette Corvette to the Skyline Chili. You ever been there? The food is mid, but I was in the mood for it. I ordered spaghetti and chili and a soft drink. Oh, yeah. And they were playing some football on the TV. You guys like football? Oh, and you know what? Really, this just pisses me off about the Skyline Chili. The waitress kept saying that I got a large soda, but the large looked like a damn medium. So we got into a bit of a heated argument. I just remember I was like yelling at the waitress. She was yelling at me. She was like, no, this is a large. And I was like, no, this is a medium. So anyway, I leave. I get home at like 1.30. Yeah, I fall asleep and I wake up to a call from Essie around 4. Super detailed. So detailed and so <laughs> what? Like, Does that, wouldn't that mean there's tons of uh, witness? of um but that's the thing the officer looked at him and said you realize that most of everything you told me cannot be corroborated by a single person because there's not one part he they didn't buy anything they don't have receipts to say you know it's just nothing It's, it's bad so mel is like i mean i guess that's bad i guess i could be a suspect but that's just the way it is okay mel so what do you think happened to brenda listen i'm not one to point fingers i'm not it's just not my style it's not my vibe okay but but Jim Rush is really dealing with a lot of substance abuse. You know Jim Rush? That's Brenda's ex-boyfriend. The guy, he's just lost in life. Lost without Brenda. Oh, and Pete, remember that one? Her her husband. Yeah, I know they divorced like 10 years ago, but Pete never remarried. I think he never really got over her after 10 years. He loved Brenda, and he's probably following her around when she disappeared. And he ended it with, gosh, I just, I hate to say these things about people on a hearsay basis, but I just want to help get our Brenda back. And he burst into tears, grieving for Brenda. It was quite the performance. The police had no choice, though, but to let him go. 
and they start asking around to Brenda's friends and family and somehow the people that knew Mel or just even knew about Brenda's dating life, they all mentioned a woman named Mary Ann. Like her name just kept popping up in the investigation as Mel's weird ex. So the police decide to give her a nice little visit. And of course, they're not going to give her an advance. They just, they love a good surprise. They show up at her house. They make her nervous. They stare at her. They, they never feel the silence. They want to see if she's going to squirm. This would be an easy way to get information out of her. I mean, human psychology is terrifying because even if I were innocent, I'd be squirming if someone doesn't feel the silence. Like, hold on. Let me give you a two seconds of silence. Yeah, my anxiety is through the roof. <laughs> And they were right. Marianne seemed visibly nervous. Not as calm and collected and detailed as good old Mel. So, Marianne, what was your relationship with Mel like? How's your sex life? Oh, really good. I mean, nothing kinky, no bondage, no attempt to give me pills or drugs or anything. You know, nothing weird. You know, I, I had very little contact with Mel since he started dating Brenda. You know that, right? In fact, the last time I saw him was shucks in April or something. Okay. Now, the police didn't believe her. They believed her as much as they believed Mel, which was not at all. I mean, they know the guy is full of shit, but Marianne was the weaker link. So the police come up with this masterful plan, aka bully Marianne. That's their whole plan. No, really. That's what they were going to do to her. So they sat her down and they screamed in her face. We know Mel killed Brenda. We know you know about it. Brenda Schaefer was beautiful. She was beautiful and Mel loved her. He loved her and he still killed her. You're ugly and Mel doesn't give a shit about you. What do you think he's going to do to you? You might as well be dead. In fact, you're dead. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. It was really intense. I mean, also. Who, who told this, uh, this part? Who shared this part? In the book, the FBI did this. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, I mean, I guess you could call it investigative work. I get it. It's human psychology. It's what works, right? But it's just so what the fork. Imagine going to an FBI training class and your whole lesson is like demean someone, make them cry. Well, imagine if you're innocent. Like, exactly. You're traumatized. Traumatized. Yeah. Like if an FBI agent called me ugly and that you didn't love me, I, I don't even know. <laughs> and they just kept screaming at her and Marianne burst into sweat and she agreed to a polygraph test which she really shouldn't have no really she should not have because she flunked miserably I mean she pretty much only told the truth about her name the police they try to turn up the heat on Marianne's butt they try to make her squirm they arrested her for two bad checks she tried to cash years ago so something that they wouldn't have cared about at all had she not been involved in this. So Marianne was close to busting, but they just needed something, something to push her over the edge, and they weren't there yet. So because of that, the investigation stalled for over a year. The police give up and they decide, okay, we just need to indict a grand jury and see if they will charge Mel with murder. Mel shows up to court, gives a four-hour-long testimony, and it's just a collection, a series of tangents, really. He admitted to the jury that he started having sex with Marianne again after Brenda's disappearance. And I don't know why this irks my gears, because maybe because I know the guy is full of shit. Normally, I love when people talk like this, but he's like faking it. He starts every sentence with, oh, gosh, I don't know. Oh, gosh, wow, it's been such a long time. Oh, gosh, maybe it was like a year ago. Oh, gosh, you know, I've just been going through a rough time recently. It's just so fake. Like, people who do it for real, it's cute, but, like, this guy's fake. And he would just say, I'm grieving for Brenda. I'm in financial ruins. I have $26,000 worth of credit card debt. Sounds like a personal problem. 
no income. It's hard for me to learn new skills and hold down a job. I'm getting quite old and I'm taking three, oh gosh, maybe four heart medications for blocked arteries and I've got high blood pressure and cholesterol and I'm just, I'm just sad, okay? I don't mind that the police are looking into me. I get it. Everyone has a job to do. Shoot, I would look into me. But gosh, do I feel bad that Brenda isn't getting justice. They're not looking into the other suspects like Jim Rush and Pete and that's all. You know, that's all I'm saying. Okay, Mel, we heard from one of her friends that you tried to drug her in Tennessee with a tissue, with chloroform. You tried to put it over her face while she was sleeping. Oh, gosh, no. No, absolutely not. Oh, wow. That's what they... Wow. I have bad allergies. I take shots for it. And, you know, I get stopped up in the middle of the night. Stopped up, meaning his nose is awful. And I take a little handkerchief or a Kleenex with me to bed. And I'll just use it in the middle of the night. Well, Brenda, she gets stopped up occasionally too. So she's sleeping in the bed and I hear her getting stopped up. So I put the Kleenex up to her nose to try to kind of get the boogers out and while she's sleeping. Uh, oh my God, her, oh gosh, her, they blew it out of proportion. I was just trying to blow her nose. Yeah, the full grown man was trying to convince the jury that he put a rag over Brenda's face in her sleep for her allergies. And they were all just being drama queens. Did you kill Brenda? No, absolutely not. I did not kill her. I would not have laid a finger on her. All the while this is happening, yeah, Mel's going to give you more icks. Mel decided to find God. Yeah, I don't know why they say find God as if God's hiding from him. He might be, okay? Mel's a horrible person. He joins a church and he mainly uses it to, you know, use it as his very own Christian mingle, really. (laughs) Like all the women knew what was going on. They thought that Mel was creepy, but one of them was the very unfortunate object of Mel's desires. He was harassing her, whining to her. And he would say, I thought you were my friend. Why are you avoiding me? And then one time he just straight up tells her, is it about the court case? Are you avoiding me because of the court case? Well, I didn't do it. But let's just say that I did. Let's say that I killed Brenda Schaefer. If Christ has forgiven my sins, why won't the state do the same thing? Why should I ever have to answer to the state if God himself has forgiven me? The woman was too stunned to speak and she was terrified. She rejected him more aggressively for her own safety and Mel took to this by trying to take his own life. Yeah, so murdering someone in cold blood, not traumatic. Potentially being charged with said murder, not traumatic. Being rejected by a woman from church you hypothetically confessed this murder to, traumatic, tragic, there's no coming back. And if I'm treating the subject in a not-so-sensitive manner, it's because I don't really think that he tried to take his own life. His mom panicked and called 911 and said, my son, my son has taken a dangerous amount of Valium and vodka and someone needs to come save him. The paramedics rushed to the scene. Mel's on the floor crying and bitching. He's like, this woman rejected me. I don't know. It just seems like a mental breakdown. Not really a full on. So the guy is also super random and I don't know where I would fit this in. It's not really an appropriate thing. But Mel showed up to a New Year's Eve party during the midst of all of this and wore a diaper over his swimsuit, like an adult diaper. And he was shirtless and he wanted to be the New Year's baby. What? I don't know what that means. And he's 51, by the way. So that same month, Mel is busy being a New Year's Eve baby and looking for his next mommy. And Marianne is sweating in the courtroom. She had to give a testimony and it was a lot different from Mel's. So this time she's nervous. She's stumbling over her words. She's rambling. And after the testimony, a nice female police officer approaches her and says, Marianne, do you want to tell me how you're really feeling? I'm afraid of Mel. Well, he's going to be arrested long before he can even have the thought of hurting you. Is there something you want to tell us? I know where the body is. The police were floored. I mean, they knew that Brenda was likely dead, but the fact that Marianne was confirming it after 16 months of working on the case, 
It was hard to hear. They still had to do their jobs, though. They promised to charge Marianne only with tampering with evidence in exchange for her cooperation. And she told them everything. Everything. We kidnapped Brenda. We tortured her. Mel raped her. And then he killed her. We buried her body in the woods near my house. Well, I mean my old house since I moved. I can take you there. It's about 200 yards into the woods behind my old place. Why did you guys kill Brenda? Mel complained a lot about his sex life with Brenda and he said that she was a cold person. He wanted to bring her over to my place and get that out of her, get her out of that mental space. He called it sex therapy class. I, I didn't think we'd actually kill her, but we did dig her grave back in August. So I guess that's well before September 24th. He even tried to get me actively involved in the torture, but he wanted me to perform sexual things on her and he wanted me to get involved with it. And at first I was going to, and then the more I thought about it, I didn't want to get involved at all. I didn't even want to be there. Anyway, Mel brought her over here and tied her face down on the coffee table and he raped and sodomized her for hours. What's fascinating is that the confession was incredibly cold and detached. Side note, Marianne also says annual sex a lot instead of anal sex. Now, I don't know if this is her brain trying to downplay what they did or what happened to Brenda, or if this was just plain ignorance, I'm not sure. But she always said annual sex. Marianne suggested that they go to her place so that she can really explain how it happened. When they get to her house, she offers, like a good little hostess, she offers everyone tea, coffee, chocolates, and uh, okay, back to what's going on. So he tortured her on the coffee table. There are investigators sitting on the couch near the coffee table eating chocolates off the coffee table and they go, wait, this coffee table? Yeah, that's the only coffee table I own. And she was so casual about it. To be completely transparent with you, I am still at that stage in my life where if you tell me, hey, something's going to make you feel better or something's going to make your skin clear, I'll probably be like, give me the clear skin. But growing up is realizing that you can have both. And I have made it a habit to implement things in my life that let me have both. Did you know that your gut health really impacts your skin health? And not just skin, apparently your gut health can impact your immune system, your energy levels, even your mental health. That is why I've now added my favorite probiotic from Symbiotica to my morning routine. It sounds weird to say, but Symbiotica's health supplements are now part of my skincare routine almost. If you guys don't know, Symbiotica is a supplement company that only uses clean premium ingredients in its formulas. No seed oils, no fillers, no additives, no natural flavors, and no artificial ingredients. Symbiotica also formulates all of their supplements for optimal absorption. For example, I love their vitamin C so much, which is also really good for your skin. If you didn't know, everybody loves it. I mean, it's probably the most popular vitamin C amongst all of my friends and family. We love Symbiotica. Their vitamin C is formulated with liposomal technology, which basically means the vitamin C is delivered to the part of your digestive tract where it can be optimally absorbed. And I just love throwing one in my bag on the go, especially when I'm traveling. Symbiotica makes it so easy to stick to a routine, not just because of their supplements being great and tasting great and making me feel great, but also because they get delivered monthly. That means I never have to worry about refilling my supplements or running out and it's just so easy to pause a delivery or add a new supplement to my delivery. With Symbiotica, I've really noticed an improvement in my skin health, but also I feel like I have more energy and mental clarity. Symbiotica has countless high quality supplements that you can choose from. Sleep supplements, cognitive supplements, anti-aging supplements. If you're not sure which supplements would be best for your specific needs, you can do a short quiz on Symbiotica's website and they'll recommend what you could benefit from. This year is your year. Are you ready to feel the results? Head over to Symbiotica.com and use code ROTTEN for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. That's symbiotica.com and use code ROTTEN. 
Our apartment lease in New York City is almost up, which means it's time for that hunt for the perfect apartment again. And I'm sure everyone can agree to this, but when your apartment takes off all of the boxes, you feel so much happier being home. You look forward to going home, but it is hard. It is hard finding the perfect place, especially in a place like New York. For us, we need to have an in-unit washer and dryer. That is like a non-negotiable. We need to have hardwood floors because of my allergies. And we love any unit facing Southwest. That is golden hour prime time. And since we're not in New York City right now, we've been using Apartments.com to help us find our new home. Apartments.com has helped millions of renters find their perfect place with powerful search tools to help find a rental listing that checks all of your specific unique boxes. I love that there's a ton of 3D virtual tours which have come in honestly so handy for us because we're constantly traveling these days. It saves us so much time and money and it's really helpful for if you're moving to a new city. Maybe you're moving to the next town over. Saves you so much time. My favorite feature though is the amenity filters. So you can make sure your possible future home has all of the amenities you need. Like I said, in-unit washer and dryer. But you can even search for units with a balcony so you can enjoy a nice sunrise with your coffee. And once you find a new place that you like, you can even favorite them so they're all neatly organized. I get so excited to apartment hunt every night with my fiance. So visit apartments.com, the place to find a place. So the investigators, they feel sick about the whole thing, which like, I didn't know that an FBI agent would come to my house and would eat my food. That sounds like <laughs> yeah. a recipe for disaster. Exactly. That sounds like... And then they all plot dead. Exactly. And she's just what? giggling with her chocolates. Like, I don't understand. So they put down their chocolates and they're like, Okay, then what happened? Well, then we took her into the bedroom. Here, follow me. I guess I don't learn that lesson. One of the officers sits down on the edge of the bed. She's like, well, we tied her to the bed and she was killed here. Mel used chloroform on her and yeah, this is the bed. So she's guiding them through this house like it's a house tour, like it's a real estate showing. And she's just so casual, so cold, so detached, so incredibly terrifying about all of it. And at the end, she lets them know, oh, and we took pictures of the whole thing. I didn't get Mel's face because he told me not to, but he should have the photos somewhere. Meanwhile, I guess harder working detectives, they get to digging. Just to be on the safe side, they need to know more though. They said, Marianne, we need you to wear a wire. What? It'll be safe. Don't worry. The FBI is going to come, wire up your apartment, and you're going to invite Mel over. Get a confession. We're going to have two officers hiding in the closet. If he tries to hurt you, they'll pop out. If he confesses to the murder, they'll pop out and arrest him. So the FBI, they get to work, they set everything up, and uh, now you just got to call the asshole. She dials his number. Mel, I need to talk to you. Okay, but I don't want to go over there, so meet at our usual spot. You know, the ice cream shop on Poplar Level Road. Okay. And they hang up. They're like, why did you just agree to that? You were supposed to meet it. Oh, you were supposed to meet here. We, we prepped this for hours, and now you're meeting him at an ice cream shop in 30 minutes, and we can't ensure your safety. Okay, okay, that's fine. You'll just wear a wire. Tell him that some developers bought the woods behind your old house and you heard whispers that they're digging everything up so that they can build something. Okay? You also have to mention Brenda's name legally. You also have to mention the grave in the woods. Mention the lie detector test and how you failed miserably, okay? 30 minutes later, Mel sides into the passenger side of Mary Ann's car. There was an unmarked FBI van with agents monitoring and listening to the wire in real time and police surveillance close by. They were ready. It was game time. But their star player did not have her head in the game. Freaking Marianne. I mean, I get it. She's terrified, but I also don't want to have any sympathy for this woman. She completely blew it. During their 13-minute conversation, Mel did 98% of the talking. 
the rambling and Marianne did nothing to guide the conversation or do anything to get him to confess to anything. She just blurted out, the FBI showed up and now they're harassing me. What? Well, what did you tell them? That I have to talk to my attorney? No, no. Just tell them that you're not taking another lie detector test, period. Tell them you're not taking the test and they can't force you. Where is it written that you have to do anything? What are they going to do? Tie you up and make you take the test? They can't do anything to you, Marianne. Don't you understand? God, you're so stupid. Don't you understand? It's a goddamn pressure game. And then out of nowhere, Marianne changes the subject. Honestly, the whole thing is comical in the sense that nobody got their shit together. Like, it's frustrating to the point that it's comical. Marianne all of a sudden goes, the property's been sold. Fine. It's been sold. Let it be sold. Yeah, but what are you going to do when the developers go back and... And the FBI are sitting in their van like, come on, say it, say it, say it. Like, what are they going to do when they go and dig up Brenda's grave? Say it. What is she doing? Why is she, why is she pausing? Marianne says, what if they clear it? She doesn't mention Brenda's grave. And he says, get serious. Don't worry about what they won't or what they will do. Does it do you any good to worry about the property? Don't make a spectacle of yourself and don't make an issue of it. And he's almost screaming at her. He says, you don't have to talk to them. You know that. You're just plain fucking afraid to stand up in the face of authority. You let them intimidate you and they know it. You know what's ironic about this whole thing? Mel wants Marianne to stand up in the face of authority so that she can protect him. But I mean, after 10 years of dating Mel, I'm sure he's contributed greatly to the reason that Marianne can't stand up for herself. Like he is being destroyed by what he himself has created. He goes on to scream at her, don't get rattled. I don't give a shit if they're going to dig down eight feet into the whole damn length of the property. They're not going to do anything like that. So stop worrying. I know what kind of structures they build out there. They build slab structures. Even if they clear the damn thing, it's just the top. That's it. No big deal. Mel talked for five minutes straight. Mind you, the whole audio clip is like 13 minutes. So he's just going on. He almost had this hysterical edge in his voice. And at the end, he said one sentence that would be up for debate for years, if not decades, because the audio quality, there's breaks in communication, and it's not perfectly clear to the casual listener what it sounds like. So this is the first one that most people believe this is what was said. Believe me, that's not shallow. That place we dug is not shallow. Besides, that one area right by where the site is does not have any trees by it. The trees are down, if you remember. So it's not a big deal. If worse comes to worse and something needs to be done, I will handle it. So the words, that place we dug, the site, I mean, these are all so suspicious. But later, Mel's attorneys would argue that it sounded like the place we got and the safe. So it would go something like this. Believe me, that's not shallow. That place we got is not shallow. Besides, that one area right by where the safe is does not have any trees by it. The trees are down, if you remember. So it's not a big deal. If worse comes to worse and something needs to be done, I will handle it. Wow. So clever. This attorney. Wow. So how does that conversation make sense in the big picture? Mel's attorneys actually tried to argue that Mel had buried a treasure chest. A fucking treasure chest in the midst of a murder investigation. That's what we're talking about. Then dig it back out. Exactly. But they don't because they there's no treasure chest. Well, we'll get there. So regardless, the police had nothing on Mel and they couldn't arrest him. He was free yet again. It had been close to a year and a half since Brenda had been missing. And then on the afternoon of January 9th, Brenda's remains were found exactly where Marianne said they would be. She was wrapped in plastic, buried about three feet deep. They found another plastic bag near her, filled with her clothes. Her purse and jewelry could not be found. 
because they were stolen. Not from the grave, but from her before she went into the grave. Brenda's body was so severely decomposed, the outer layer of her skin had essentially dissolved. Her facial features were gone. Most of her body hair had fallen out. She was bound tightly with rope. And this is going to be pertinent later. She was almost bound in this like fetal position. Her arms wrapped around her legs. They were tied near her ankles and a rope was tied around her head and it went around her knees and then to her ankles. I mean, just by imagining it, you're having a hard time because it was intricate. This whole thing was so complex, so intricate. Everything was knotted with this precision, with these types of knots that most people couldn't even know existed. What, what is his background on that? Does he have special... You know who has a good knowledge of knots? People with boats. Ah. They have a really right. good knowledge of knots. Yeah. And even though the knowledge was extreme, the investigators said that they had never seen such intricate series of knots in their entire lives. But in the end, her body was so badly decomposed that the investigators could not find anything. Oh, any DNA evidence? You're mean? Not much. I mean, they did find hairs later, which they didn't test. I'm just. So they couldn't find anything. The skin had deteriorated. There were no markers. There weren't even bruises. So, I mean, it's clear that she was going to have bruising because of how intricately she was tied. Mm -hmm. But you couldn't even see any rope burns anymore. That's how much the outer layer of the skin had dissolved. The medical examiner was forced to run dental records to get a match. Her legs were permanently bent. Even during the autopsy, they couldn't unbend it. They had to cut off Brenda's hand to send to the FBI in hopes of getting a fingerprint. Not a fingerprint match, but a fingerprint because that's how badly she was decomposed. The scariest part of the autopsy that still goes unanswered to this very day and is driving people crazy is the fact that Brenda recently had a hysterectomy. Do you know what that is? It's when your uterus, your ovaries, your fallopian tubes, they're completely removed. They're not injured. They're not misplaced. They're, they're removed. So they, he cut. The we don't whole know. Part out? So the examiner couldn't tell when it took place. There was a suture line that indicated that it was pretty recent. The Schaefer family was shocked by this news. I mean, everybody that knew Brenda was so shocked. What are you saying? A hysterectomy? I mean, sure, she had menstrual cramps when she was in high school. Sure, sometimes it was bad, but she had never taken enough time off of work to get an operation. She never asked her family, hey, can you drive me to and from the operation? Which you would need. None of her medical records indicated that she had a hysterectomy. So is this still a mystery, you would say? Yes. A friend of hers remembered the summer before Brenda died, she was complaining about having menstrual cramps. I mean, the whole thing is really creepy. And these are all speculations, but some people speculate that she was drugged and a hysterectomy took place. Some people say that it took place during her murder. I mean, the whole thing is just so creepy and it's, it's unanswered. Brenda was buried January 13, 1990. Her mom passed away exactly five months later. Her lupus had deteriorated, but members of the family insist that Brenda's death had taken away Essie's will to live. Her husband, John, Brenda's dad, suffered a heart attack seven months later. And this is like the saddest part about John. He lived to see his oldest son, Jack, brutally murdered in the line of duty, his youngest daughter tortured and murdered, his wife die of illness and heartbreak, and everyone said that the months leading up to John's death, all he did was stare at a wall. He just sat there staring at a wall. As far as the Schaefers were concerned, Mel Ignato was responsible for three deaths. 
Maybe even four. Because remember Jim Rush, Brenda's ex? Uh-huh. He died in his bedroom a few months after Brenda disappeared. The coroner ruled his death cardiovascular disease, and it wasn't connected to Brenda's death in any way, shape, or form, but all of the additional smoking, all of the additional drinking that he did when she was nowhere to be found, I'm sure it contributed in some way. I'm not saying this guy was healthy as a horse, but it just makes this story even more heartbreaking. So when the police get confirmation of Brenda's remains, they immediately go to arrest Mel. And it's said that the head detective, Jim Wesley, was so excited, was so happy to catch this motherforker that he tripped over a step in Mel's kitchen, almost fell to his knees. And everybody finally, for a moment, almost laughed at him because it was a good moment. You know, they couldn't save Brenda. They felt like they could at least put this guy away for life, make him pay for his heinous crimes. Maybe he'll even get the death penalty or so they thought. So the police take Mel away and they start searching his house and they were shocked. The place was meticulous. It was a level of neatness that they had never seen before. The entire place was spotless. The only thing that was found of interest was a few newspaper clippings about Brenda's disappearance. That was it. No alleged photos, no alleged films, no chloroform, no shovel, nothing. It was spotless. He kept a journal with all these highlights of his days. And a lot of the dates, curiously, around September 24th were violently crossed out in black ink. Like, way to make it obvious, right? Experts, which by the way, I love that the world is filled with endless experts. I just think, you know, when we think of experts, we think of like the same three generic categories. But the fact that handwriting experts exist, they can, you know, pick apart the scratches with the indents of the words written underneath them. I find it so fascinating. So they try to decipher this. A single line was deciphered from the whole thing. It was written September 24th. It read, sex slash keep bound in house, dot, 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 unrealistic idea. It seemed like Mel tinkered with the idea of keeping Brenda bound in Marianne's house as a sex slave, but decided it was way too unrealistic. So Mel gets arrested, and in typical asshole fashion, he sells his house to his mom for $100. You're like, what does that mean? Why does it matter? We don't care about real estate, Stephanie. It's because if the Schaefers decide to pursue a wrongful death suit against Mel, his assets would not include the house because he sold it to his mom. And you can't sue his mom. And the house's value was at like 350K. So his bond is set. He's indicted for murder, kidnapping, sodomy, sexual abuse, um, tampering with physical evidence. So this is a lot. This is a lot of charges. Kind of pertinent later. Marianne was charged with tampering with the evidence. And she was going to testify during Mel's trial. Which, by the way, I don't even know how to get into this shit show that's Marianne. But she pretended, allegedly, she pretended to have Bell's palsy which is like a swelling of the motor nerve. It causes one side of the face to droop, but it typically doesn't impair speech. It's typically also not an incredibly painful thing. But Marianne walks into the courtroom with a medical patch over her eye, and she's walking gingerly, as if every step that she's taking is the most painful thing she's ever experienced. Even though the condition itself doesn't typically cause pain, especially not in her legs, and all the words that she said on the stand were fa, 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 fa. Like nothing was coherent. Why is she like that? The prosecution speculated she's faking the condition to avoid testifying. Yeah. Wow. She also wasn't seeing a neurologist about her condition, which is weird (laughs) because wouldn't you see a neurologist? And a neurologist that was not her doctor testified and said, you know, I've treated hundreds of patients with Bell's palsy. I've never seen her symptoms. Like her speech is weird. I mean, 
everyone else's speech is perfectly understandable. It's almost like she's making a mockery. Like she's, it's weird. Another doctor said, there's no physical reason for Mary Ann's impaired speech or walk. Unless it's on some sort of unconscious level, or of course, she's faking it. For that reason, the trial was postponed. Come on. During the postponement, Marianne went from gingerly walking around, not even being able to talk, to getting married and going on cruises. With who? With With her new, yeah. (sighs) So the trial starts late 1991. By this point, both of Brenda's parents had passed, and just so many factors in this mess. This trial was going to be held in Kenton County instead of Louisville. With only three weeks before Christmas, Kenton County juries traditionally we're less likely to find someone guilty near Christmas, which is a terrifying thought that I've never really thought about until this case. Humans are so emotional. They're so impacted by seasons, by holidays. I mean, we think that we're logical, but imagine putting your fate in the hands of all of these emotional beings. It's terrifying. So explain that during Christmas. You don't want to find people guilty because Because you're in this holly jolly spirit of everyone's good. You want to help the world. You know, I think it also has to do with why there's a huge uptick in donations during Mm -hmm. the Christmas month, during the holidays, because it's like a giving season. Like you feel he, Mm. you know, the Christmas carols put you in a certain mood. Wow. Yeah. The jury consisted of a clerk, nurse, housewife, retired school principal, a truck driver, an IRS employee, and a city maintenance employee. Few of them had jury experience. The prosecutors were facing an uphill battle. Brenda was badly decomposed. They had nothing to work with. The death was even ruled homicide by unknown means. Juries don't like unknown means. There was no way to prove that she was killed with chloroform like Marianne claimed. Speaking of Marianne, Prosecutors realized most of their case relied heavily on Marianne. She was the star witness, the one to bring the case home. For lack of a better term, they fucked up. Okay, because Marianne is not someone you want to depend on, ever. For example, they did other things. There were animal hairs on Brenda's body that the prosecutors failed to analyze. Guess who's got dogs? Marianne. Guess who never goes to Marianne's house? Brenda. So if they were able to pinpoint those animal hairs to Marianne's dogs, I mean, that's more evidence. Mm -hmm. The partial print found in the back of Brenda's car, ah, they never matched it against Mel's prints. (laughs) Speaking of, the front seat of Brenda's car, when it was found, was adjusted to the seat of someone tall. Brenda was 5'3". The seat was not for her. Let's be real. It was for someone that was over six feet tall, like Mel. Then the prosecutor found out too late that Mel did other suspicious things after the murder. For example, he went over to a girlfriend's house named Barbara, an ex-girlfriend, gave her a dildo, lube, and condoms, and was like, here, keep these, thanks. So people are like, maybe he gave it to Barbara so that he could get rid of them. I mean, it's an odd gift to say the least to give to your ex. Maybe he used these things on Brenda, and now he's getting rid of them. The prosecution actually learned about this through Crime Stoppers, but by then it was too late. I mean, there was going to be no more court delays. Barbara could not testify which she would have been an amazing testimony compared to Marianne, even though Marianne was there at the murder. So you're like, how? I mean, she was the one that was there. Let me explain. Marianne showed up in a short skirt that was way too short for the courtroom. Fine. Okay, that's excusable. Then her entire vibe, her posture, her mannerisms, they were so relaxed. They were so casual. She was nonchalant. Maybe that's just who Marianne is, but it did not read well in a courtroom. 
She testified about her relationship with Mel, how they dug a hole to use as sex therapy for Brenda. She said, one time he started digging the hole and I think that there was, there was some mention that he was going to bury her there. I told him, I don't want any part of that. He said, don't worry about it. We're just going to scare her. What do you mean you're just going to scare her? Well, he said she's a very timid person and if you raise your voice at her, you could scare her like a timid little mouse. Which I don't know, it makes me question, then why the hell do you need a grave then? So Mary watched Mel dig the hole and she said, oh, and then he broke his shovel midway through. He had to go buy a new shovel. Oh, we even did a scream test in my house. And I know I sound bored. And that's because Marianne sounded bored. Like she was sitting there describing this heinous crime, this vicious murder. And it was with the enthusiasm and the emotion as you would describe a potato in the product aisle, like the produce aisle. At one point, she leaned back and had her chin like on her right hand. You know what I'm talking about? Like that bored, like the stereotypical, I don't even think anybody does this in real life, bored pose. She said, oh, and then we did the scream test in my house. So I stood inside. I screamed as loud as I could. Mel went outside and um, he was just trying to see if he could hear me. Okay, so tell us about that day. Well, the day before Mel came over and he brought these like black plastic garbage bags, some duct tape and this clothesline rope that he cut into pieces and oh, and a camera with like rolls of film. Oh, he also brought like a battery powder dildo, lube, work gloves, his fraternity powder. He brought a lot. Oh, he also brought chloroform. Yeah, I forgot a bottle of chloroform. And then September 24th, Brenda picked up Mel. They drove around. They like did some things and around 6 p.m. he told her to drive to my house. She didn't know it was my house. Okay. Um, and then what happened? Then she came into the house and she was confused. She was like, Marianne, isn't that your ex? And um, she was so confused because she even said, after all that stuff you said about Marianne, why would you bring me here? And Mel was all like, well, you're here for sex therapy class. This will get you better at sex. So she explains, Brenda gets up and she says, I want to go home. And Mel tells her, no, you're not leaving. As soon as you do this, I'll let you go home. First, I need you to take off your jewelry so that we don't get it damaged. He took her watch, her necklace, her bracelet, and her engagement ring. He had her stand up against the wall. And he had this checklist of all the things he wanted to do, even in the order that he wanted to do it. It's almost like he was fixated on doing these actions. He starts taking pictures of Brenda with the camera that she gave him for Christmas. And he said, here, pose like this. Okay, now like this. And eventually he forced her into taking off her clothes. He forced her into the classic image of a war prisoner. Do you know what I'm talking about? With your hands behind your head, elbows out. Brenda was terrified. She just said, can you please get this over with? I just want to go home. Okay, but first you need to lay face down on the coffee table. She laid face down. He tied her arms and her legs to the table legs. Mel got undressed, which by the way, the author goes in depth on how many moles Mel has and like how hairy his back is. I don't know if that helps you paint the picture, but here we are. He also kept on his prized possession, a stainless steel and 18 karat gold watch. This is important later. He performed oral sex on Brenda and then he raped her with his body as well as sex toys. He took close up pictures of her private areas. Then he dragged her into the bedroom. Marianne's bedroom tied her to the bed and he told Marianne to take pictures of them but don't get his face make sure his face isn't in there 
Which to bring you back to the courtroom, again, Marianne is telling even this part of the story, like with her head leaned up against her hand, speaking so casually. Her body language was so indifferent, it was wild. She was completely emotionless. And not in that traumatized, like I am completely disassociating from this, but just like, whatever. She went on to say that Mel kept making remarks at Brenda. He would say things like, Brenda is having sex better than she ever had before. He was constantly checking things off his list. He was sodomizing her. And at one point, Marianne tells the courtroom, he raped her annually with his finger and smelt it and remarked it smelt very good. And he told me to do the same thing. And I was scared, so I did the same thing. Then Mel took out the fraternity paddle and started hitting Brenda forcefully. She was screaming and Mel was silent. He was enjoying it. Now, she also said that Mel forced Brenda into recording a short audio clip, and it goes something like this. Mel starts with, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are coming to you live. This is your host, Mel Ignato, and here with me is my PUTA, the Spanish word for sex worker, the Jezebel who tried to leave me. She's been captured and taken prisoner by me now. The prisoner will now identify herself. My name is Brenda Sue Schaefer, I've been captured and taken prisoner by Mel Ignato. Describe your situation, Brenda. You treated me like a dog. You humiliated me by stripping me naked. You have bound me hand and foot. And now, oh no, I'm trapped like a beast in a snare. It sounds rehearsed. It sounds like he's forcing her to say these exact lines. He said, well, Brenda, my bound beauty, welcome to your nightmare. And then Brenda starts sobbing in the background, screaming, Mel, I'm sorry, please don't touch me, please don't hurt me. Which, I mean, I think this part really shows his mentality. I mean, this is so incriminating. This is, I imagine if you're a criminal, this is the last thing you would want to record. But he doesn't care. He wants to own her and he wants to hear her say it. It's vile. Marianne said she couldn't watch anymore, so she ran to the kitchen. She had more than enough time and know-abouts to go call a neighbor, call 911, anything really. But she did nothing. She stood there in the kitchen and she did not help Brenda. Then Mel called in Marianne to come and wipe Brenda's face. She brought a washcloth and wiped away Brenda's tears. I don't know how woman to woman you can sit there and wipe someone's tears after this type of traumatic event and not feel something in you. No matter how much you might hate a woman or this woman or what kind of relationship you've had, I just can't imagine how you would just say, you know what, I'm still going to sit back and do nothing. I just, to me, that doesn't make sense. I think it goes against human nature. She was bruised. Brenda was bruised. She had rope burns everywhere. And Marianne looked at that and left the room. She could see from her peripheral vision that Mel was dousing a towel with chloroform. He put it up against Brenda's face to deprive her of oxygen. Marianne said that she didn't see Brenda die, but when she got back in the room, she was unmoving. It was later speculated that Mel only knocked her unconscious and buried her alive. Mel tried to calm down Marianne by saying, she went to sleep just like you would go to sleep. She didn't suffer. Calm down. Again, it adds to the theory that he never killed her with the chloroform and she was alive when she was buried. Another reason that people believe this is because she was tied up tightly in a fetal position. I mean, Mel tied her up so elaborately that you have to wonder if he knew that she was still alive and he was worried that she was going to crawl out of the grave. Yeah, that's what, why why did he tie her so elaborate exactly there must be a reason behind it 
And it doesn't seem like he has, I mean, yes, he is very aggressive when it comes to his sex life, but I don't see a lot of reports saying, oh, like he was obsessed with BDSM and like ropes. I didn't see that. He did like tie people up occasionally, even Marianne, but it, to this level, this is a different level. He, like he was more of like a casual, you know, does that make any sense? Yeah. And also the fact that he freaked out when Essie told him that she thought that Brenda was at her sister-in-law's. So it's kind of like, okay, is this his like gut or something in him that's like, oh my God, did she, that split second of like, what? That makes sense. Yeah. Which. (sighs) Wow. Wow. Yeah. When you like sit back and you think about what kind of person it takes to bury someone alive. Wow. So Mel put Brenda into a garbage bag and wrapped duct tape around it and carried her body into the woods. Marianne said, I was carrying one side and he was carrying the other. He just kept getting mad because I had to keep sending it down. They placed Brenda's body into the grave and they threw a garbage bag of her clothes in there. They covered the grave, went back to Marianne's. He took all of the things and he got into Brenda's car. Marianne drove behind him. They abandoned Brenda's car. And this was Marianne's testimony. On paper, it was impactful. But her delivery, she told it so matter-of-fact, almost in like this bored tone. It, It was ridiculous. Meanwhile, the defense painted a more emotional picture of Mel. They said Mel is this sad, honest, good man and not a sexually sadistic monster. I mean, the star witness is a woman that, wow, sorry to say it, but is obsessed with Mel. She, of course, wants to see him in trouble. She wanted to be with him. She wanted to be engaged to him. After 10 years, it didn't work out. And oh, all of a sudden, this great man she wanted to marry is a killer now. Ladies and gentlemen, are we really to believe that? Would all of your exes say amazing things about you? The defense, they were able to get some random witnesses. And I don't even know how these people, I just, I don't even know how these people came about. I don't know how they got these witnesses. But there was one waitress that, oh, no, no, I was certain I saw Mel and Brenda at my restaurant that day. And Brenda was so happy. She was smiling a lot. Interestingly enough, Mel never even claimed to visit that particular restaurant. But uh, the, the witness helped him. So why not go with it? Another witness, a boat owner, insisted he saw Brenda and Mel on Mel's boat. Again, Mel never said he got on the boat since the weather was bad. But he wasn't going to shut down another helpful witness. So the jurors, in the end, did not believe the state provided proof of guilt, beyond reasonable doubt. They believed, in fact, that some of the prosecutor's evidence was laughable. Other jurors, they just liked Mel, plain and simple. He was impeccably dressed, he carried himself well. And then more than a few jurors were very skeptical of Marianne. They believed that she was more guilty than she was letting on. One juror later admitted, we were just goofing around. I mean, we didn't really get the full weight of the situation. We just wanted to get it over with so we could go home for Christmas. It was a shit show. Holy cow. After two hours of deliberation, the jury had their verdict. Ten jurors voted not guilty. Two voted guilty. In the end, the others convinced the two for a vote of acquittal. Mel was a free man. He was found not guilty in the murder of Brenda Schaefer and all the other charges too. Kidnapping, sexual abuse, robbery, everything. I can't even imagine how Brenda's family felt. Mel was going to walk free. I mean, it was so bad that Judge Johnston, who presided over the trial, wrote a letter to Brenda's brother. It said, Dear Tom, I want to express to you and your family my shock and dismay over the Ignato verdict. I am still unable to fathom how a jury could come to such a decision. I fear that it had little to do, if anything, to do with the evidence. 
You can imagine how many times I've been asked, what happened? And I still don't have a rational explanation. You and your family have the utmost respect for the manner in which you have suffered through this tragedy. I can hope that your family will someday be able to put this behind you, whether in this world or in any other. One day, justice will be done. Sincerely yours, Martin Johnstone. Meanwhile, Marianne was sentenced to five years in prison for tampering with evidence. She was given the maximum charge. Now, Marianne was in jail. She deserved it. But Mel was walking free. And that, to me, is wild. So Mel's house gets sold and the photos are found. But here's the problem. Mel's free and none of the pictures show Mel's face. A lot of it is just Mel's torso and his legs and no face. How can they even prove it's Mel in the pictures? So the police have an idea. A judge can sign an order allowing Mel to be stripped and photographed naked, which is legal under federal statutes, which is good to know. So again, they arrest him and they take him down to the FBI field office and they say, all right, buddy, you're going to be photographed, fingerprinted, and we're going to take some photos fully clothed and then naked. We want you in the same positions as the male who is photographed assaulting Brenda. For comparison, of course. They say to Allah? Yeah. Mel freaked out. He's like, I'm not going to strip down with a woman in the room. The female FBI agent stood up and said, yeah, you are. You don't have a choice. I'm a lead FBI agent on this case and I have the legal right to be here and I'm professional at my job. And they just felt this small tinge of justice. Mel had forced Brenda to strip down and humiliated her and now they were going to do the same to him. Well, I'm not going to do it. Mel, I have a court order and you're going to comply. No, I won't do it. I won't be humiliated like this. I want to see my attorney. And you can after you're photographed, as that's the law. We have a court order. It won't do you any good or me to have to roll around here on the floor ripping your clothes off now, will it? Your clothes, they're coming off, so I don't want to hear it. Mel gave in, but he said, I want it on the record that I'm protesting. Okay, well, it's on the record. Mel stripped down. He was forced to be photographed in various lewd positions. This was not in the pictures from what I know. He was also asked to put his hands behind his head, elbows out in the same war prisoner position he had put Brenda in. The confidence drained from Mel's face and he was clearly humiliated. The photos were compared and there was no doubt that it was Mel in the pictures. He was even wearing the same watch when he was photographed. It was very clear Mel raped and tortured and murdered Brenda Schaefer. But there was just one problem. Double jeopardy. Mel was acquitted of her murder and he could not be tried again for it. The law protected Mel. Instead, the police indicted him for perjury and lying to a grand jury. Yeah, the injustice doesn't end there because the maximum sentence is just over 10 years. Mel is 54. If he served the maximum, he would still be in his 60s and he would have quite a life to live as a free man afterwards. And that's the best case scenario. So to avoid getting the max sentence, Mel pled guilty. He said, On September 24th, I did take Brenda Schaefer over to Marianne Shore's house, and I did physically and sexually abuse her, and I did murder her. She died from having inhaled chloroform, and she died peacefully. I assume total responsibility for what I did. What I did was wrong and horrible, and there are reasons, but I'm not going to get into that because there are no excuses. He's making me mad. I just wanted to say to Brenda's family that I'm very sorry for this. I know all the pain and sorrow and suffering I've caused, I felt it myself, and I want to apologize to my own family for the same reason. I want to apologize for the local, is he giving a thank you speech? 
I want to apologize for the local law enforcement agency and the judicial system, local, county, state, and federal, for all the grief and burden I've caused them. It was not my intent to do that. I hope you all forgive me, and I ask for forgiveness from God, and I hope that there's some unknown way that God will bring about some good from this, because I know the Bible says in all things, God works for the good for those who love. What are you saying? I just want to punch this guy. So Mel is sentenced to eight years and one month, and he was fined $150. I'm really glad that they find him that. That's going to teach him a lesson. It's such a small amount. He doesn't even need to sell his prized watch to pay it. I'm so glad. He wasn't even required to complete any prison psychiatric counseling. But was Mel happy with getting away with murder? No. He argued he should get a reduced sentence for pleading guilty. He saved the government the trouble and expense of preparing for a trial, which is, which is just insulting. I mean, think about it. He could have been looking at the death penalty if he wasn't lucky, but now he's complaining about a few years in prison for murder, for torture and murder. And it worked though. Two years were shaven off and another year for good behavior. He was released in November, 1997 after serving just five years. But here's where it gets weird. So before he was arrested the second time, he actually got into a legal dispute with Brenda's former boss. Brenda's former boss was so distraught and Brenda had a good relationship with everyone at work, especially her boss. So he, um, he threatened to kill Mel. Yeah, that happened. Then there was this whole legal lawsuit. Mel was trying to sue. He was trying to sue. It was like this whole thing. And during a lawsuit deposition, um, Mel and the employer sat there and Mel said, I didn't hurt Brenda. Well, as soon as he was released, he was indicted for perjury in the Spalding case, because you can lie more than once. He just confessed that he killed Brenda, but in that legal deposition, he said, I did not hurt Brenda. See, I like that. You can never truly get away. No. So he was sentenced to another nine years in prison. He was released December of 2006. After being released, he moved into a house four miles from Marianne's old place. And on September 1st, 2008, 70 years old, Mel was found dead. An upstairs neighbor said he walked down and he found Mel's body in a pool of blood on the floor. There was a trail of blood on the floor indicating to the neighbor that Mel hit his head on the coffee table. So you know when you're 70, you're old, you fall. Mm -hmm. He fell, hit his head on the coffee table through the glass. He dragged himself towards the kitchen because he's bleeding now a lot. But then he changed his mind or maybe he realized that his phone is not in the kitchen. Then he tried to get to the bedroom just trail of blood the whole place and he lost his strength and bled out and died it appeared to be accidental there is still no cause of death mel's neighbor said you know it's sad he's a sick elderly man alone and struggling for help and he apparently stumbled to his death i i used to hear him at night asking for jesus to come get him because he was in pain listen i don't know if this is karma but small conspiracy time what if the neighbor killed him I mean, he's just so nonchalant. I mean, just the way that he talks about the situation. I feel like the neighbor, I, in my head, I don't know if this is to make myself feel better about this heinous case. So Mel's dead. And Marianne, she was released in 1994, died 10 years later in 2004 at the age of 54 of natural causes. And this is probably the clearest cases of double jeopardy not being a good thing. Now, I'm not saying we need to get rid of double jeopardy, But this is wild. And he did get away with it. And there was no justice. Wow. 
But those those yes. juries, though, you know the the, uh, the way they just. I can't even see. It's so scary, jury duty, because you never really know what you're getting in for. Yeah. And you could just have a couple people who don't really care. Yeah, there there could be so much injustice too. Yes. On the daily oh basis, if you really think about it, there's actually Reddit threads of people who were in jury duty, and they just talk about the things that they've heard from other jurors. And you'd be surprised at how many jurors just want to get it over with. Exactly, exactly. <sighs> What are your thoughts on this one? Let me know, and I will see you guys on Sunday for the mini sode. Bye.